Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Among the chatter with this week's guest, Cal Dietz, is some incredible talk about new pressure point methods used to promote nervous system repair. Dietz goes on to discuss his experience of using things like split squats with a camera bar in lieu of squatting during certain phases of training. His mad scientist evaluation is derived from monitoring cortisol and testosterone levels in athletes. Likewise, he spent years manipulating rep ranges and lactic acid training duration to provoke the appropriate physiological response. The result has been a well-conditioned athlete who is less susceptible to overtraining. And finally, the mystery of how powerful feet are directly correlated with a big, strong ass. So much more this week with our buddy Cal Dietz. This is episode 274. We have a special guest and, uh, you in, know, visitor. In-house. In in-house, coming actually to Power Athlete Ranch, Mr. Cal Dietz. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Great day to spend down here in Austin with you guys and Tex being here. I appreciate your guys as, uh, having me in. It's a great day in Texas right now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a little warm. We love it. <laughs> oh, uh, this is cool. Yeah, this is beautiful. Uh, actually, Cal and I had a killer day, man. We... Uh, he hit me up. I drove over this morning, and we got to go see UT have a little football practice. It was great, man. They were out on their big field, hitting and banging, clicking and popping, so it was good to watch. Yeah, I know you were a little disappointed with the weather, John. You wanted it to be 108, <laughs> I think, out there, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a slightly cloudy, what? 81. 81, and John yeah. was just disappointed about the weather not being football weather. Yeah, they asked me. I was like, you need to get rid of these fucking clouds. We need to get more fucking heat. Uh, I, I just, uh, I'd like, to me, it's like uh, um, the more extreme the climate, the better it is. Like, I want to see it cold. I want to see it hot. And, uh, and realistically, it just comes down to the fact that the hotter it is, the worse looking the guys will be. The look on their face is just like a death. And I, I feed off of that misery. Well, let's, let's honestly start there because heat acclimation is a necessary piece of kind of summer sport conditioning for this fall sports. So... Cal, do you have any insight on that heat preparation? Cause well, we, here from Minnesota, it's never very warm that's there. That's kind of why I asked, because they still need to prepare. Those, those guys travel, those northern teams travel down south sometimes for games. And, um, I mean, during summer conditioning, unfortunately, every year it seems we're seeing a, a young man or woman pass away because of heat exhaustion or other reasons. So, um, John, talk about your ah. training experience and Cal, any 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 insight there that we can help kind of protect our coaches? You want to go or? Uh, no, I mean, you, you can take it. Jump yeah, in. I mean, the first thing I think is that if you, what, what you'll find is kids with the highest V2 max are less likely to have that problem. So that aerobic base to me, that fitness level base is a uh, important part of it, right? Um, I know the vascular system helps transfer heat too. So that's when I'll feel, um, not to push triphasic, but I know with that isometric phase, the, the vascular system health is improved. So your ability to push fluid in or around the body and, and, and really move heat when it should be moved in and out of the body or, or different places, is, and for the body to ability to cool itself. 
Because when I say that, you know, with, with my athletes and super low heart rates that they have because their vascular system helps in good shape and then their ability to transfer that heat, I think saunas are a good thing if you know you're going to go out sure. into that, right? I mean, um, but, you know, ultimately that, that fitness level, if you can handle that stress, because I think that there's a trigger or there's a tipping point in this heat where you can't move thermodynamics isn't as effective. And then when you get to a certain point, the chemical reactions in the body stop functioning, right, with this whole deal. So that's the dangers, and I believe that fitness model. And sometimes I think these kids go, they become super sedentary, and then they come back with summer conditioning, and then you have that problem right there. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. I think that they are not in shape. I mean, that's all it comes down to. And, uh, you know, maybe running shape, maybe they're in, uh, you know, shape to pass their conditioning test. But at the end of the day, like you talked about, developing that aerobic system and being able to be able to handle that load and be able to be out there long. And you know what? The only way you're going to get good at it is actually doing it. Um, I remember we would go out and run in the heat of the day when I lived in Tampa with Roth. And it's like, man, you got to get used to it somehow. I mean, the only thing you really don't have to like, I know this sounds awful, the one thing you don't really have to prepare for is playing in the cold. Like, you just have to fucking mentally think about, I'm going to be cold, whereas the heat, like, I think the heat takes preparation. You have to be in shape. You can't go out. And the other thing, too, is I think a lot of guys take a ton of pre-workout. Yeah. Um, That's the big one. And, like, as I was watching those guys out there, and especially some of the offensive linemen for UT were kind of gassing early, and I was thinking to myself, man, I wonder if these cats had taken a bunch of pre-workout because I know the pre-workout jacks them up in pre-game or in, uh, in like, the pre-deal, and then all of a sudden you hit that fucking lower piece and they just kind of looked a little tired. And, you know, but rightly so. If they're in a, you know, nine-on-seven, one-on-one, this is a big hitting practice, you know, I could see those guys maybe taking some pre-workout or doing something to get ready. Um, I remember uh, when Corey Stringer passed away a number of years ago. I mean, that was kind of the big kind of pointing yeah. to it, like a federate. Well, they banned a federate, but he didn't take a federate, but right. he had been taking some pre-workout. Well, yeah, that pre-workout heats you up, right? And then I think you can take something if you have to. But, again, I fall back on the minimum effective dose, right? Take a little bit, have, maybe have some water if you think you need some more to get through the end of practice. But the, the small amounts, I think you're completely fine. But the problem is is uh, when they take those large doses because it's a big practice or something along those guidelines. And, ooh, there's some, there's some, well, so then one system stimulated and then you get heated up and it stops functioning. You see what I mean? And then you just have a, a system breakdown in the dynamic, the whole dynamics of the entire complete system. You see there's a breakdown somewhere and then there's a cascade of negative effects. That- well, we even talked a little bit today about salt. Uh, yeah. about supplementing with salt, especially if you're using, you know, burning through that much, uh, per, you know, perspiration and out there working in this. I mean, the problem that we run into in today is, you know, everybody's on this low salt, low sodium kick when, you know, these guys should be consuming, you know, grams of this stuff and as much as they can. And unfortunately, they're not necessarily pushing that and salt being one of those, you know, massive deciding factors for performance. <laughs> no question. I mean, in your typical, it's, but, but can a nutritionist that's a certified say, hey, we got to take this much salt in? No. Uh, that, that's, you know, that's not the standard in their, no. in their industry. And if they, you know, I mean, if you're certified, I guess you could say, what are they like, a nutrition? Registered dietitian. Yeah, yeah right. registered dietitian. You're certified within a certain methodology, you know, which is saying, you know, anything more than 1,500 milligrams a day of sodium is considered excess and then all of a sudden somebody switches and is like, you need to be taking seven, eight, nine, ten grams of this right. stuff, you know. 
And it's like that is really, uh, yeah, it's it's a bad deal. I know, you know, with the salt, it, it holds, uh, helps you hold the fluid in, especially into your blood. So you could, again, when the blood thickens, think about that. You get dehydrated blood thickens. You got a problem of moving the thermal dynamics around. I know because thermal dynamics. Uh, I mean, I learned this from a Russian doctor. His name was Viktor Koschev. He had three P. He three three doctorate degrees. He oversaw Chernobyl. He was oh. a chief medical officer, right? And his his research at the end was thermal dynamics in the human body because they would spend astronauts in the space and they couldn't go out on their spacewalks for very long because they heated up in those suits. Uh-huh. So they'd have to come back. It was like working in a sauna. So he was, a, he was working on extracting the heat out of the body in the right format through the head, right? Because if you put it cool on the, 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 the wrong parts, you have vasoconstriction throughout the body. So that didn't help. So they found that you could actually go through the hands, which I think is the research out there now, but then the gloves or, yeah. and then on the head. Sure. The head was the big one. He actually still owns a patent for that, but... To my knowledge, that uh, he had three doctorate degrees, one of the smartest guys. Like, you know, you talk about adaptogens. They started in the 60s. He was a doctor that signed off on all the funding for adaptogens, mm. where they were hoping that it was like, you know, they were looking for the cure for cancer in some regards with all those plants that they had, right? But, yeah, that's what they were looking for. So, and he was a chief. Well, who was the who was a dictator back then? Uh, Stalin? No, and then after Stalin would have been uh, uh, Gorbachev, right? Yeah, Gorbachev. He was his personal doctor. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this guy, and then... He, he was, I guess he wasn't very nice to people when he was in Minnesota because he defected to Minnesota. And he was teaching in our, our um, kinesiology department. So That's I just cool. did what, yeah. So I heard he wasn't really friendly. So what I do, I took him a bottle of vodka and he opened right up. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh. yeah. That was pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> but you're like, hey, yeah, the thermal dynamics and with the salt, you know, I, I know it helps keep fluid in the blood and, and fluid in the right spots with the body. Do, uh, do they do any, um, like, uh, I was thinking this, like, for the guys at UT, I'm, I'm, are, are they using a bod pod DEXA scan? Are they doing anything to kind of do any body composition yeah. type stuff? Yeah, I think they're using yeah, the they, DEXA. They got the yeah. DEXA, yeah. so they got a whole sports uh, sports science side of things. And it was, I mean, pretty cool. I guess they got that green screen, mm-hmm. and they can put you in a little suit and see your movement. I guess that, that was primary for the Olympic athletes. I don't know if they do it for football. Though. Yeah, they have the Dari now, I believe, for the, for the football. So you can get a screening movement. You know, pretty fast. Now, I'm always fascinated, too, if you could do a DEXA scan, you know, like before and after, um, you know, like... Uh, the, the, like, like the, the summer or the, every well, day? Well, no, but I mean, I was thinking, like, if they had the ability to do, like, a before and after, I know it takes a few minutes, but then to be able to see the dehydration within the body, because yeah. I know that the DEXA, one of the big deciding factors in it is uh, is fluid. You know, so, like, dehydrating, dehydrating yourself actually makes it for a more negative DEXA scan score. Yeah, it does. So then if... Actually, uh, you can sodium load a little bit, but a few days out, it'll help. It'll be positive for you. you okay. I mean? yeah. We're taking notes because we're in a little... Uh, oh, don't worry. Oh, don't worry. Sure. I already got all the notes. Don't worry. I'll share them with you the day after. <laughs> the day after. <laughs> yeah. Um, car- carb up with that sodium loading too, right? Yeah. Get the right carbs in. Yeah. It'll fill Luke, up your muscles. Don't listen to this. <laughs> yeah. Well, Luke, Luke has a man button. He instantly loses. You can eat a... I think you can eat a big meal too. Yeah, right yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. right before we'll add some, yeah. some mass to your uh, trunk. Right. Yeah. yeah. But no, it, it was good. Uh, the practice was killer, man. I appreciated hearing the offensive line coach just yelling at the offensive linemen the same way that everybody's yelled at offensive linemen for the last 50, 60 years. Hey, let me ask you, John, if you had this. 
I remember being in camp and, and dreaming about going through a drill and the hell, you hear the O-line coach scream and you wake up out of it. I don't know if you ever had uh, that. No, thank God. Yeah, I was uh, like, damn, it's but, 3 in the morning. <laughs> but it's like they all go to a clinic and like they're like, I was just hearing their line. I started laughing. I even said to the guy, I was like, man, I really appreciated, uh, you know, you basically going from like zero to a, a you know, a, a thousand percent so quickly. And he was like, you know, like all of a sudden just yelling at these dudes and these dudes are out there in the heat and they're not moving and this, and he's busting their ass. And I was like, this is brings back a lot of memories. So I, I love it. It's great. And, uh, yeah, it was good though. But the, uh, you know, we, we got to see them hit, we got to see them go out there and it was, uh, it was good. It was a good practice. I, um, I'm hoping UT does well now that we're, you know, living here in Austin, I think you got to root for UT as your, you know, as your local team. So for sure. Uh, what else we got? We had some interesting conversations throughout, I guess, just hanging out upstairs. Um, we can get into conditioning, I guess, metabolic systems. Um, well, um, before we get into the RPR yeah. stuff, I wanted to talk a little bit about your presentation out at Summerstrong. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, especially talking about uh, the fixing of the athlete's heart and, uh, you know, resting heart rates and a lot of the kind of the physiological changes that you've seen from triphasic specifically the uh heavy eccentrics yeah or what uh was it the isometrics or the eccentrics well, they both it's kind of the process so when you know when i test some guys they have a uh you know on a large wall of the the left ventricle right so and i call that hockey heart nerve world or you know you get an athlete who has a thick um ventricle and what happens is the chamber's not big, is, is uh, less efficient because it's not big. The heart's strong, it's just not as big and not as efficient as pumping blood. So it seems like at the end of the season, especially with the interval athletes, they all have that problem, you know, especially hockey. I mean, they're out there 30, 40 seconds. It's not full tilt like people think. But uh, And then they, they all have that problem. So then when we go through the triphasic phase, that, that aerobic base, and I do a lot of the contralateral work when I say that, and the reason is so that I found that I think I train the vascular system to be more efficient because let's say I'm doing a single leg squat with my left leg and I'm doing a shoulder press at the same time with my right arm. Well, you do that for 30 seconds and then you have to switch to your right leg and left arm. So then the vascular system becomes more efficient at moving blood around. And I found benefits in the contralateral movements in that case. I also saw, found a huge, a lot of benefits in their balance. So testing balance after I did my contralateral circuits seemed to improve kids' balance. Just by, you know, just walking and, and resetting the nervous system as we know. But the aerobic base was, for me was the foundation for everything. And, and really, when I stumbled upon the aerobic base, it was like I heard Yuri Verkashansky, the great Russian strength sports science guy, sure. you know, um, as we talked through him, it, he, ta he called it, I don't even think it's a word, but it was uh, biodynamicalness is one of my notes. Or, yeah, right? I mean, it was a bad translation into English. But, but the, 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 the biological system has to become more dynamic so then it can handle more training loads. So... I realized the aerobic base was important, and really it came with my throwers, my shot putters. Like, I can't send these guys out to run two or three or four or five miles. So then what's the best way for me to build their aerobic base so that they could do more training, right? So right. one year I checked tendos, and we, we would do tendo training right out of the chute, and we did singles on quality, and it was based upon, hey, how, much, how many singles can they get before they drop off? And we got to, like, 10, 12 right out of the shoot, right? And I was like, okay, that's not bad. The next year I implemented this aerobic base training where we do either circuits, keep your heart rate under 160, 170, whatever your lactate threshold was, or even the one that, that a lot of NFL linemen like John was the, uh, 
the 50% load on bench to 50% load on back squat. And you just go back and forth for 10 minutes. Heart rate's at 150. And they're going, yeah, this is like jogging, but I'm just lifting, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I came back and retested those sores the next year. And I mean, we got into the 28s. 25 singles before they dropped off on their speed. So I realized I could double the work, the quality work of training if I just built the aerobic base up. So by building the aerobic base up, and then we jump into the eccentric phase, which is, uh, which is pretty tough. We know that. You actually get more sore in the triphasic uh, uh, eccentric phase because you're remodeling tissue at that yeah. point, right? But then, then the metabolic phase comes with the isometrics, right? So it's like 30% stronger in most lifts, 20 to 30% harder to do the isometric. It's that much more metabolic. But when you get under there and you're under a 500-pound single-leg safety bar squat and you, you go down to the deep and you hold your breath to help for stability, your blood pressure goes up, it actually is training your vascular system too along mm -hmm. those guidelines. And uh, when you're done with that phase, the blood pressure's drop in all my guys. The resting heart rate's drop 15 to 20 beats. And that's when that heart problem seems to disappear in all my readings and all the tests that, that, that appears, right? So what you're doing is training the vascular system to be more, more efficient because the pliability. And that, if you look up pulse wave velocity and understand what that is, when the blood pumps out of the heart, and really the blood, heart's not a pump and I'm not, you know, you, there's plenty of books on that if you really want to look it up. Um, it creates a series of vortexes to push the blood through, but that vascular system is very important and all part of that. And, uh, you know, I, when, I, when I'm done with my isometric phase after about six, it could be six, seven weeks, and you check them, I mean, I have a lot of guys with 32 to 36 resting heart rates. We've done no really conditioning at that point, per se conditioning. And we only lift for the last four weeks, we've only lifted it at 10 second intervals at the most it's usually between five seven or ten and they have a low low blood pressure which is good as long as you when you stand up you're not getting dizzy or anything yeah. and then a resting heart rate that's super low and the ability to repeat effort after effort you know because we'll go i mean my kids can run there was one time where we did 50 some sets in the weight room of seven seconds and i went, went out and ran 20s with my guys until they dropped off and i had one of my kids hit 23 20s before he dropped off 110 2320s, you know what I mean? You're, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. And I guess one of the biggest limiting factors that we discuss and try to talk to coaches about is that replication of speed or replication of your abilities. And I guess a lot of coaches get wrapped up in the numbers, the ones, so the single effort tests versus their ability to replicate the best of their abilities. Yeah. That, uh, that you know, and I, I term it as repeated sprint ability, and the okay. research shows that, right? And that repeated sprint ability, if you take teams of equal central you know skill sets what what wins the game is the teams that's the fastest at the end that's mm -hmm. it right i mean that's what the research is showing and you're like hey now it's not getting out coach or out played from the start right you're talking at the end if you can run if you're if you can repeat the efforts that you were repeating the most like closest to the beginning of the game you're the team that's going to win because everybody slows down yeah one of my favorite stories is from charlie francis essentials where the the russian hockey team would go and whoop Canada's ass, and Canada couldn't figure it out, but it was Cold War, so their strength and conditioning was shut off from the world. So Canada was getting their ass beaten in the third period, so they were like, all right, we need to get in better shape. VO2 max, VO2 max. So for, I think it was 12, 12 years until finally they got the, the data back. They kept on losing to the Russians, and 
Canada was 10 points higher on their VO2 max than the Russians. But what was it? Their practice was more sprinting. Their training was more sprinting. And that replication of, of hockey. Of hockey, <laughs> yeah. So it was Canada. Shocker, right? Yeah. yeah. It was, it, so that's outlined in his, his story. It just blew my mind away. And I always try to, I guess, communicate that when talking about conditioning tests or these tests that sport coaches want versus, you know, that replication of speed. Yeah, I mean, John, you know, there's not much you can do to replicate a 12-play drive that's, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, besides a 12-play drive. And then, you know, maybe you can push the sled for repetitions, but it's not the emotion of a game and the thinking. And, you know, when you, when you add the cognitive part and you start, I know, I know at times in my, I would start maybe holding my breath when I was thinking and playing hard at the same time, you're right? So, so I actually forget to breathe when I'm, you know what I mean? So that's a very important factor when you're training too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy that uh, to simulate that, emo the emotional part too. I mean, it jacks your heart rate up another 20. Yeah, but I mean, um, and I think we were rapping a little bit about this, like having that kind of calm, cool, and collected and not allowing people to tap into that emotion into the training and even in the game a little bit. If you're going to go out there and play for three hours, play 70 yeah. plays, like you can't be mm -mm. like, you know, riding the lightning, you know, <laughs> like, no, like, well, <laughs> you may get it through halftime, but then it's not. Uh, yeah. Right? I mean, like, I, you know, guys are over there taking pregame, like during the game, you know, I remember see guys mixing up, uh, you know, water bottles and they've got like their, you know, whatever their pregame or, uh, you know, uh, pre-workout and they're sitting there drinking it the whole day. And I'm like, dude, like, you, you're not going to last. Yep. Man, you got to go out there and you got to be able to play at a high level of motion, but you got to be able to have, you know, uh, a certain, you know, cognizant, you know, like just a very baseline ability so you can go out there and be able to replicate it. Like if the only way you can get intensity is by fucking beating your chest and howling at the moon and taking a bunch of shit, you're not going to last very long. No, then you can't repeat the effort of speed, right? You're just going to drop off. We know this, right? It's, it's, it's be able to do it. And then to me, it's. It's literally a, a shift into your resting state, your parasympathetic. So the best athletes can go hard, and they, the sooner they can drop their heart rates because they're calm and not emotionally tied into it, then they can repeat that effort because all the organic substrates get, get recovered in your muscles and all the systems that need it, and then you can go again hard. So one of my favorite things I've seen on the Internet lately is uh, guys cracking smelling salts and using ammonia, ammonia caps before their For lifts. Sport or? No, on, on the Instagram, like okay. lifting weights. Brian Mann did talk about like pre-kickoff. Oh, and yeah. there is study, there is research done on yeah. smelling if, salts and like kickoff. So speed. before every single NFL game, I remember the trainers would always come around and they would always like, you know, like I'd see the dude and it was like kind of our little pre-game ritual. He would always come over and hand me two smelling salts. And uh, the reason he did it is I could snap the smelling salt. And, you know, when you take the sniff and most people like look away, I can sniff it and not, and not pretend and be like, is this broken? and hand it back to him. And so the trainers would always come over and, and like give them to me or they tell the new guys, like the new trainer, be like, hey, go give John the smelling salts. I'd step and be like, are these broken? What's wrong? And he's like, oh. And I, I'd always get him with that one. And they were like, how does it affect you? I'm like, it just doesn't affect me the same way. But uh, that was like one of the good jokes. But yeah, man, I mean, we would always pop the smelling salts and like it, we're, it wasn't real football until it was ready to go. But you only reserve those for, for game day. But uh, lately on the Internet, I'm on uh, Instagram, I'll see these guys getting ready to go deadlift or lift weights and they're over there fucking huffing that stuff. And I'm like, do you do, you do that every set? Like, holy shit, dude. Yeah. Like that just fries the nervous system. I oh, just don't boy. think you can do it. Not every set. There's no way. <laughs> I just, I Maybe they do. I don't know. I mean, they're over there popping that stuff. Oof, that stuff is, uh, it's good. I mean, it's, you know, that's, 
that's the smell of the NFL to me. But uh, no, man, I, I think, uh, um, you know, what we've kind of figured out and shit, man, like, it was great listening to you present at Summer Strong and even, you know, getting to hang out today is that, uh, you know, there is a very real training system to get guys, you know, th- up to their peak performance. But there's great matrix for being able to find if they're at their peak performance and things like, you know, increase heart rate variability, lower, you know, resting heart rates, you know, uh, um, you know, blood pressure, all these other yeah. key factors as they're like his performance is going up. All of a sudden, these other markers are getting into a really good place. Sure. And I think sometimes people don't equate like performance, you know, like athletic performance with increased health. Yeah. You know, as soon as the health goes let's say you're, you're just your morning resting heart rate. If you just track that and you're overtrained, you know that's going up, right? You just take your blood pressure. Like you, if, you're sympath- if your heart rate variability is bad for two, three days, guess what? Your blood pressure's up now. Yeah. And, and these are simple things. You know, you can take your urine test too. You'll be, be more acidic in your urine, right? Saliva test, same thing. So people don't understand. If you've been sympathetic for a while, it start, which we know it's a sign of overtraining or something's wrong, then it starts to have various health effects all across the board. And that increase in blood pressure, right, increase in cortisol. Cortisol follows all that, too. If you're sympathetic, you know you're going to have higher cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. Your body's under stress. End of story. You know, uh, as we talked even. And heart, these are all indicators of, of something's going on. Now, I mean, and John, you and I even talked, if you can, you can take a supplement and if you have a negative heart rate variability response... It might not be good for you, you know what I mean. But it, it's good for somebody else. Sure, you know. So that's a way to find it. Or unless it's got a bunch of byproducts and a bunch of crap, you know well, yeah. where it's coming from. Right, right. You know, or if it's a stimulant, obviously it's going to get worse, right? But yeah. but if it's not a stimulant, um, legitimately, you know. Well, I, I use this story. I had one of my pros, and he, he he actually took really good care of himself. Right, he did a ton of tests, and uh, before he'd done his food allergy test, he had. Uh, he would come in and his heart rate variability was bad. And, and he was doing pretty well. He'd have organic coffee with organic whey protein shake before he came in. And his wife took courses to help him, you know, take care of themselves and both of them. And then, and he was just having bad readings, bad readings. So I said, all right, switch your, switch your protein shake to a goat protein milk or whatever. And then let's go with green tea. And he did that and he had nothing but great readings for two days. So then we added the, the protein back in with the coffee. Boom. The whey protein. Boom. Coffee. Bad reading. So then we got a food allergy test. Guess what? He was allergic to coffee and whey protein. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and he was eating really expensive whey protein and really expensive coffee, right? But it didn't matter. That's what he was allergic to. Uh, I can't imagine being allergic to coffee. I, right? I think I'd want it. Well, I, I wouldn't want to know. The problem was he had a uh, gut dysfunction, right? So he was actually allergic to most of the foods he was eating. Oh. So then we got his gut healed up and sure. then reintroduced stuff. And he, and was, he fine. was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't natural, but the, the allergies weren't like something that was a, but, you know, having the, having the gut issue that things were leaking into his, the permeability of his gut, right? They were leaking out and then he had an immune system response to the foods that he was eating. Yeah, the leaky gut. And then, you know, there was some histamine issues there. So he had some skin issues too, right? At that point, and those all eventually cleared up because of the histamine response. You know, the, the histamine thing is pretty interesting. Uh, my wife talked to me a little bit about it and she, um, some, somebody had approached her about it and uh, I, I had never really heard about uh, like a histamine kind of diet, a diet low in histamines that when right. people, you know, 
have like this uh, allergy reaction to, to histamines, like, you know, pulse, you know, uh, blood pressure, oh, yeah. everything goes through the roof and they get yeah. this kind of fight or flight deal. Yeah. And, you, you, you know, you, you, so, so really you get that histamine, heart rate goes up because you're trying to process that. And then what you do also is there's certain genetic markers. You burn through the B, B, B vitamins super fast. So those, those type of people burn through their B vitamins that might be having a histamine response. So, and then some people have a histamine response and it may be a normal time frame of that you get rid of it, right? But there's other people that hold on to it twice as long. So then you may eat a bad food for dinner and you don't understand why I was tired at seven o'clock and I ate food and then all of a sudden I got all this energy. It might be a histamine response. Yeah, it's it, so so. What's what's good? And it might be the healthiest dinner you could eat. Sure. But for you right now, it wasn't. You know what I mean? At that particular time, it may be the food you're allergic to. So, uh, do you find more people are tend to have gut issues than uh, in the past? Are you finding yeah. it to be kind of like uh, just? I mean, over fifteen, twenty years, it seems like. Yes. Like. I have noticed more people today than even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like, or maybe just weren't as educated about it, but it's like, man, the amount of people dealing with some form of like gut biota, like some form of gut issue, yeah. uh, it's, it's almost like, seems, it seems astronomical. Well, from allergies, like there, there's more allergies now, I think, than there ever was. And that, that, I think that's part of it and that whole gut thing. One, I, I think it's the genetically modified foods can cause some gut impermeability issues, right? And then realistically, if you look at it, just the more stress that we're under as humans. Cause, so what happens? You, you release more cortisol and it just breaks down tissue. You know what I'm saying? So all of our tissue in our body is, is struggling to recover as much when you got more cortisol with, with the blue lights, all the, you know, everything driving, sure. you know, driving a day with John here is, you know, there's more, I mean, three cars pulled in, right? You know what I mean? You think he'd get out of the way is a small car, but John's got this big diesel pickup. Yeah, right? I, just, you know, I don't understand. I don't stop. Which, yeah. and, <laughs> which truck was it today? Oh, I, I took my uh, Duramax. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, here, here's the best thing. I have zero stress when I drive. That's beautiful. Oh, you are yeah. in the flow state for sure. Uh, yeah, 100%. I have zero stress. And the reason being is that I am the one that creates the stress for people. I'm not <laughs> yeah. the stressy. I'm the stressor. You are the one who knocks? Yes. So, so, so when I drive, I think that I'm creating stress for other mm. people, which invariably makes no stress. Oh, yeah. I mean, you should get a bumper sticker. I'm the gut problem. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just roll. Yeah, Friday night in the fall guy. It was an adventure. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I, I took tra- uh, Tex in my tan truck uh, yeah. in, in my uh, um, 80 Chevy. It does look like uh, the Fall Guys truck. It, it, it's the same <laughs> yeah. color scheme. Uh, it's fully caged, you know, box. It's four-linked, uh, 3 king coilovers. does about 400, 450 horsepower, five-speed, 513 gears, 40s. And that truck rolls out, and it handles and goes into curves. And so I got Tex in there, and I'm driving. I'm like, don't worry. We're fully caged. If we flip, we'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, we were easily. Like, I think I was in fifth at, like, 3,200 RPM, so it puts me about 100, and we were just rolling. And uh, nice. the truck just drives really well. And, yeah. uh, you know, and the, awesome. the thing I appreciate about with Tex, he's just like, uh, I'm pretty sure John's pretty skilled at this stuff. So, you know, if, if we couldn't do it, we wouldn't be doing it. We'll just let it ride. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a good driver. Just makes me appreciate my, you know, uh, what we, moseying. Yeah. When yeah. I, I can't even top 60, so it's yeah, great. I, I drive fast. Mm. Uh, you know, I... Um, uh, I don't think I told you this. I did all like the Richard uh, Richard Petty like NASCAR experiences when we were in the NFL. You fit in a NASCAR? Uh huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. We I got in there. I don't and believe we, you, dude. We did all that <laughs> stuff, and like I literally was on that dude's ass, just going, going, going. So I like to think I'm, you know, almost a race car driver. I'm NASCAR certified. Yeah, NASCAR certified. <laughs> I am actually one of the only people I've ever met that's actually been 200 miles an hour on the street. 
Good. Know well, that? I'm going to add that to your Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, 200 miles an hour. Uh, I was on a drag bike, Daytona Beach. I rode on my buddy's uh, twin turbo Hayabusa and hit 200 miles an hour wow. on the street in a, on a, in, a, in a race bike. It was While good. You, were you still under contract? Uh-huh. Yeah, still in the NFL. Not wearing a helmet. Oh, God. Well, I figured, shit, if you're going to fucking wreck at 200. It, helmet doesn't Yeah, matter. helmet ain't going to do anything. Fucking just go. So. You just might keep an open casket. Yeah, it's fine. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I wasn't yeah. worried about any of that stuff. You know, it's just part of the deal. But yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I just, it seems to me that like, you know, more gut issues or maybe it's just, you know, people being more, uh, apparent, but I don't know if you guys spotted it the other day. Uh, guy won $289 million in a lawsuit against Monsanto. Um, you know, actually uh, they came out. Monsanto? Uh, you know who mis- no. Is that the corn? Uh, yeah. well, well, so, yeah. so Monsanto yeah. makes Roundup, which is the, the glycophosphate, you know, that, that they put in to kill all of this stuff out here. And they, for years, they've said, ah, oh, it's not harmful. You guys are a bunch of, like, you know, conspiracy theorists, all this. The guy had, uh, you know, tremendous lesions, cancer, all the shit, and went in and sued him. And they ended up awarding him $289 million, And they came out, and they're like, this stuff causes cancer and, you know, damages the environment. Um, you know, and it's... it's uh, the interesting thing is that the Roundup kills um, all non-genetically modified foods. So they've genetically modified the foods so that they will not get killed off by the Roundup, but any of the non-GMO, you know, non-foods get killed off by that, except their stuff. So, like, you know, for years everybody's been like, oh, tinfoil hat, tinfoil hat. And now it's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe yeah. that stuff is kind of dangerous. And then they talk about, like, um, you know, uh, it you know like I, I saw a deal and I I don't know if it's accurate or not but they were talking about like why is gluten allergy more apparent today than it was before and it could be the fact that like the glycophosphate mixes with the gluten in, in kind oh, yeah. of an interesting kind of way. Well, so. it's not the same gluten as it was years ago. Yeah. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean we're you know we're, we're in interesting times, but I think they do a great job about uh, if you think any of this stuff or ever bring it up they're just like oh you're a conspiracy tinfoil hat right. and then they just shame you with it which is ironic yeah. seeing as if you learn the history on that. The uh, conspiracy theorist was actually coined by the CIA after the Kennedy assassination for a way to discredit people that were bringing up ideas about, you know, the Kennedy assassination. Have you done the tour? Have you been to Dallas? No, not. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It, it gets you thinking a little bit. So you're saying that it would have been a difficult shot. Well, there, if we pulled up the video and pictures, there's a man in a hat with an umbrella. Yeah, that's the guy, the, uh, the burka guy, right? So that... Umbrella could have been a uh, could have been a firearm. We had the technology, and it was a beautiful sunny day in November in Dallas. Why do you have an umbrella? Mm. Question. They never been able to find that guy, huh? I don't know. So we're <sighs> way off. We are yeah, in we've yeah, JFK off, well, territory. Well, uh, John, the big thing in my opinion is the the response to our stress and how it beats the gut up. You're stressful. Beat your stomach up. We know yeah, that. but I mean, uh, haven't we always dealt with stress? I mean, hadn't stress always been like... I don't know. Uh, to I this mean, level? I don't know. I yeah. mean, maybe. I think we're more stressed than everyone in our past. Like, you go home, you don't have to worry about the social media. You learn a bit from the midnight, the, the late night news, and you went to bed. I think life was a little simpler. I, I maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you, you get to see a peek inside my house today with uh, three kids, yeah. two dogs, a wife, everybody running around and like... Like hanging out, I'm like trying to force my kids to eat some hamburgers. I'm like, let's grill it up, and like, but like that's, uh, I don't get stressed out by any of that stuff. Yeah, it's, no. I mean, I, I mean, text might when text comes over and sees it all, but learning, yeah. 
I, like, I think at some point you got to just kind of let Jesus take the wheel and realize that like, uh, it's just going to happen. Yeah. No, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, but you, you think that maybe social media, you think, uh, I mean, I, I like, so you're in a really interesting place because, you know, not only are you a collegiate strength conditioning coach and you actually work with your athletes, but you got to work with them before social media mm-hmm. and before a lot of the cell phone stuff. I mean, we're about the same age. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you've, you know, come in and you've seen this whole different like environment come in. Yeah. The, I mean, are, are the kids more stressed today? Are they, uh, you know what? There's a level of entitlement that appears to be more, you know, when I first started coaching 20 years ago, you're like, man, they were grateful. Um, and I, I mean, I can't say my, the, the group that I work with, the men's women's hockey team, they're, they're a pretty good group of kids, but I saw a transitional shift over the years, especially with some other teams that I dealt with. You know what I mean? You're like, they're not as, the respect that they had for coaches wasn't necessarily there. You know what I mean? Um, my, I respected my coaches at all levels. My dad was like, yeah, you got to listen to the coach. And now, you know, I think, John, the hard part, um, and maybe you can help me with this, is that I've seen over the years is that you, when you're building a team, like they're teaching kids to question everything nowadays, which I think is good at, at a great level. But the hard part when you're going to build a team is that when you set your path, you can't start questioning things now that we've set our goals in place. You know what I mean? So it's really hard, in my opinion, to build a team because, you know, we, we set the team path. This is how we're going to play. This is what we're going to do, you know, and we're ultimately going to sit here and we're going to go, hey, this is what we do. And then the, the dad probably comes in and says, well, should we be running this offense with your kid? You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? You see how it goes, the outside... And, and I'll be honest with you, our society isn't good for team building the way that, that, that I was taught to be a part of a team. You know what sure. I mean? I mean, John, we won two national titles at, at my college university with the wishbone. Would I ever run that? No. Yeah. Right? But, but that's what we did. We ran the wishbone. We had an answer for everything the other team would stop. And that's how we won is because there was a team and there was a process. Now, would I ever run the wishbone in my own offense? No. no. But it, it worked for that but team. But it was a system, and, and it was a team, and they recruited the right kids, you see. So I don't know. It's just hard to build a team nowadays. I think kids are different. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, I I, did, I I didn't get a chance to wrap with any of the Texas kids, so I don't know. But I just know that, uh, you know, the, those kids have uh, – I think things are, are – more readily available it's more kind of front and center i remember you know when i was in college like you know uh you know the thought like the nfl to me was kind of interesting because i mean we only got to watch it on tv like we couldn't afford to go to any of the games so like you know we didn't really you know like the players that i knew that were playing in the nfl were guys that i played with or played against and like i didn't really have any contact with them it wasn't like i could call them on the phone or text them or social media or anything so it was kind of like uh we were i was pretty removed from it whereas like i was thinking about these kids today like just watching them out there i mean they all have you know social media platforms they have this they have parents they have people friends and them watching them uh and it's just i just think that there's so much more under the microscope personally uh i was thinking like wouldn't it be great if, if like, the coach is like, here's the deal. Get rid of all your social media. Get rid of all this stuff. Just, like, go be a kid. Go play football. Be a student. And, like, don't worry about any of this other nonsense. And, um, but, unfortunately, it, well, we're kind of past putting the genie back in the bottle. And then the other one I was thinking, too, when we were rapping about it, like, the kids that are like, oh, you know, this isn't the, the right environment for me because they were saying they had, I think, two kids transfer out or two kids quit because right. they weren't playing. And um, what those what those kids forget so often is that the first player, the first person that the scout and the coach and everything from the NFL comes and talks to is the strength coach 
and the position coach. And like, you know, like they never ask like, hey, um, uh, you know, was the offense that you guys were running, was that the most conducive offense for this guy? No, they don't ask that fucking question. They just want to see the game tape. Were you able to execute and win and do well in the, in the environment that you were placed in? We know as a player that you have uh, no say in what, what play is called. We know you have no say in what uh, offense is run or how it's done. Your job is to show up and, and basically execute and, and, you know, and do the best in your environment, and that's what they want to see. And so like these, these kids, I think, sometimes think that they have a greater opportunity to kind of pull some strings, and I think they don't. No. You know? Well, and they don't realize how these, you know, when, when I talk to these pro representatives they'll go they don't ask Cal, hey how far is he vertical how high is his vertical how much is he is he strong enough to play in the nhl i'm like yeah and they're like was what kind of team player was he did he do well in the locker room with his teammates was he a leader for the team that's the type of people they're looking for you know because they can find athletes that can do this or that and the physical part they just i guess they trust me because they're like hey is he strong enough i'm like yep he's good okay now what's the real good stuff is he a good leader? What's he like in adversity? Is he somebody that the kids turn to when there's, there's a lot going on? You know what I mean? And that's what, and, and you know what? I think that leadership is, is, uh, starts at the top, but it's important today. And it can't be fake. It can't be fake because the kids. So how do you build it? I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, like, as you're sitting there and you're thinking, like, man, if this is so fundamental to each of these kids' success, then, like, as a as a string coach, how do you cultivate that? Do you put them in an environment where you make them leaders? Do you, I mean, because, uh, you know, I mean, in reality, as a strength coach, you almost have more time to yeah. work with the kids than their position coaches ever do. I mean, I spent more time with my strength coaches than I ever did with my position yeah. coach. I mean, you put them in, like, to me, it's about the process every day. They, they know what to expect. I think clear communication about what's expected, right? And then you just make sure you hold them accountable and they have to hold each other accountable, right? So my seniors, I'll, I'll get them and uh, like one of the things I'll do is I'll, I'll put them all in, I'll put them in four groups and then I'll pull one guy out of each group. And then what we do is I'm like, all right, I talk to those four. I tell them what I want. They run down. I tell them, hey, you're going to run down there. You're going to set up the weight room in two and a half minutes for this entire lift. Okay, here's the catch. You can't talk. You're the only people that can talk you for. Now you got 25 other guys and you got a small group that you got to deal with. Right. So I will say, all right, I explained it to you. You got 30 seconds of questions to ask me. So they have to ask me to to anything and I'll leave things out to try to make sure that they you know what I mean. So then they understand that, hey, and then they got to go back. I'm like, you got one minute to tell your guys what to do and no one can talk. The first time we do that, it takes them four and a half minutes to set up the weight room. Yeah. And then we pull them back in when they screw up. And I'm like, all right, where was the miscommunication? So they start learning that, okay, I should have said this. I should have said that. So then we, we, the next day we come in and we do this again. And the time start going down. And now by the last day of two weeks, we're down to two minutes. Setting up from four and a half to two minutes because they can better communicate. Now I throw all these variables in or we do different stuff. Or, but, but essentially we'll come back to that same setup two weeks later and they can drop two minutes off because they have that that skill set they understand that hey i'm in a position and and i think one of the big things is communication interpersonal communication as Mm -hmm. a leader which they don't get they get all this texting you know what i mean Mm -hmm. the social media and everybody they see is always in good spirits when that's not the case 
You think that there's a, I mean, that's pretty interesting. I always think yeah. about that too. I mean, think about how many people text me and it's just such an easier kind of, yeah, and, you know, interaction opposed from like picking up the phone and actually talking to people on the phone. And it, it, to me, it's uh, if I ever get a text message or email where I'm like, hmm, that's kind of fucking cunty or I'm upset at that one, I'll usually pick up the phone and be like, what's up? And then everything gets smoothed over. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we, we talk about that with mutual accountability term stole from Jeff Gonzalez, but it's that, uh, I guess, practicing of the communication in a stressful situation is the same model as on the, the rink, the field. It's just, it's an opportunity to fail that communication in a stressful situation, but it's the same mechanisms of communication and listening and clarity and direction that they're going to experience on the field. It's just an opportunity to fail, get some feedback, yeah. and then come back and do it again. Well, John, what was your two-minute drill like the first time you ran it in camp? It's horrible, right? It's not that uh, yeah. good. You know what I mean? I mean, we, um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, At least yeah. in college. Like, you get to the pros, yeah, and it, it's it, one thing. I mean, there's a... Well, there's, yeah. th- there's an interesting thing in the two-minute drill when you practice it in, co- in uh, the NFL. There's usually done with, like, a certain sense of urgency because everybody's been in the situation yes, where so the two-minute drill has yeah. won the game. So, like, all of a sudden, when they are like, hey, we're going to do the two-minute drill, everybody fucking, you know, get your yep. shit wired together. Right. You know, people go out, and there's a sense of urgency because you know invariably you're going to be in that situation. Right. I, but in college, that first that first time I, it runs in yeah. camp, it's terrible. I've coached, and I'm like, this is horrible. Well, this is like an eight minutes to score. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, but that that's kind of the interesting thing. I mean, watching those college kids today, um, you know, having, you know, like trying to put myself back in their mindset, which has been a fucking too long. But, uh, you know, the kind of putting it through the lens of the NFL where it's like, you know, like you don't have to coach effort. There's this um, for, you know, as the coach was literally getting on these dudes to like for effort, like when we were watching him do just the board stuff, the co- you know, the offensive line coach is like, get your fucking asses going. And he's like riding these dudes just trying to get their, you know, like uh, they, they were doing like a hitting drill. The guy was playing their defensive dummy, just getting that guy to go hard to give them a better look. And like, I'm telling you in the NFL, like if you're given a fucking look, like we don't want to get yelled at. So then you go out and you give a great look, but you learn how to do it. You learn, I was saying that you go up and you like give a big pop so that the coach hears the pop and everybody runs through him. They, they set up everything, a great pop. And then everybody just kind of chills out. So you make this great initial hit and then everybody kind of like, kind of, I mean, and you learn how to do it. And I wanted to go over and tell those dudes, I'm like, you guys need to learn how to fucking work as a team, as an offensive lineman, so you don't get your fucking asses chewed and look like a bunch of fucking assholes. If you could just give me 20 minutes, I could show them how to do this, where their coach would be like, yeah, we're fucking on it. I don't have to yell at anybody. These guys know what the fuck they're doing. But invariably, there's like one dude who's loafing around, not trying. Everybody's got their hands on their hips like they were tired. I was like, fuck, dude. Like, even if you're tired, don't do that for the mere pack that the coach sees it, and then he gets on your ass. So it just comes from age and experience and, you know, being smart enough not to get yelled at. Yeah, that experience. You know, I, I think some of these young kids, too, the problem is that they don't truly know what's going on, and they got too much to think about, so they can't always make everything look clean yeah. and crisp. I mean, I noticed that when I'm coaching young kids, like I remember I was coaching youth football, and all this, this kid just would stand there when the plays, and once he learned where to go, then he was a lightning bolt, right? But he, it, when, when yeah. people don't know, and they're not conditioned on what to do when the guard pulls left or, you know, you see this sign, and I mean, the young kids, I'm just helping them out a little bit here because when you don't know, I, I don't see people that are very aggressive when they don't know what the hell yeah. is going on, right? So you've got to know your 
Your well, plate? I, yeah, dude, my, my deal, I, and I've told people for years, if I didn't know what I was doing or, or I, you know, like there was a play and I was fucked up or like I was going to do something, I didn't know what I was going to do. I literally ran and hit the dude who was closest to me and tried to knock him down. And I remember one time I like I made an assignment error, but I knocked this coach uh, dude down. I remember the coach being like, uh, you fucked up the assignment. You, you know, you got the wrong dude, but you fucked up the guy you got. So like he wasn't necessarily mad. He's like, I can't really be mad. He's like, uh, he goes, now, if you had fucked up your assignment and not done anything, he's like, then I could scream at you. But he's like, you fucked the dude up. And I was like, well, all right. Well, yeah. he's like, let's just get you on the right page. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, if you're going to make a mistake, make, make it 100, mile, you know, 100 <laughs> miles an hour and make yeah. somebody pay. With a roll cage. But uh, yeah. if the uh, it just, uh, yeah, man, it, just watching those kids, is, I was. But uh, is that entitlement? Like they were, they were big fish coming to, or they were big fish in a small pond and now they're entering. Well, yeah. well no, but like, mm-hmm. so when you play offensive line, you know, you're wearing all this gear, you're a big motherfucker. I mean, those dudes are huge. Like, I mean, every one of those dudes is 300 plus pounds. They're big guys out there, even though it was only 81 degrees and a little humid and overcast, wasn't that hot, but they're out there. They know they're out there for two hours. So they're trying to, in their mind, they're trying to like almost pace a little bit to be able to get through the next thing. So they're like in this kind of like a constant fight for pacing. And as I was watching those guys, like they were, you could see it, man. They like were doing their lazy jog, um, which is funny because uh, it takes a long time to get there. So what I would do is I would run as fast as I could to the next drill, and then I would get there and wait and, rely- and stop. And it would make everybody look bad and piss them off, but I would just run as fast as I could and get to the next drill, and then I would get the water and relax. But, like, those dudes are kind of just kind of, you know, doing the O-line shuffle. Uh, just honestly, man, it's like um, – if you are ever in a situation, especially for those guys where they have to conserve and they're kind of fighting for this thing, it usually comes down to that they, uh, you know, need to be in better shape. I mean, that was like my biggest thing, man. Like I was never going to be in a situation where I was out of shape or I was never going to be in something where like if it came down to like being in good shape to be able to put the effort for it to be able to do the job, I was going to do that piece because it was just that's the easy thing to do. Like, it's not hard to be in shape. Just fucking do the work. And then when you go out there, you can run around and you feel like you're in pretty good shape and you're not out there fucking dying hands in your hips and you don't look like a fucking, uh, you know, slub. And, you know, you out there and you actually look the part, you're standing up, you're ready to go. And it's just like, even if I felt like shit, I still did that because the perception is reality. When you look tired and you're moving slow and you're doing this, the coach is like, what the fuck is up with this guy? What, you know, like, it's just... um so much of playing in the NFL and college and a lot of these things is just looking like you know what the fuck you're doing. It's kind of like a football practice. If you're like standing around not doing anything, somebody's going to yell at you. If you're going to fucking stand around, you better pretend like you're doing something. Like you better get down and tie your shoe or do like you better be fucking doing something. So I just think it's like it, what those what those young guys needed was probably just some fucking old dude to be like, hey, man. Like, let me show you how to not get yelled at. Like, let me show you how to do this job so you look like you know what you're doing at all times and so that they're fucking, they'll just go on and yell at the next dude. They'll go yell at your fucking walk-on. So that's all it came down to. Yeah, uh, I guess I interned there five years ago. Coach that did that, he was Tim Cross. He's at Air Force right now. Yeah, I know Tim Cross. Yeah, yeah, he's a funny guy. Um, And I guess observation that I'm thinking about it from way back, I guess I categorize athletes into three things. They had the walk-ons. There's a lot of walk-ons. Uh, at UT, then you had, I guess, guys that had the God-given athletic ability. Dude, and then, they had a but lot then of, there I was mean, there was a there was a higher level, and it was the highest level that I've ever had the opportunity to experience, work with, see, and they acted like every single rep was for the national championship. 
Life so depended on it. it. It was an amazing thing to observe. I guess their older brothers had played for the championship team at Texas, so mm-hmm. there was still some of that Elvis dust, I guess, in the air. And it, it, was, it was amazing to see. But then, unfortunately, some of those guys got hurt, and then the playing yeah. time was given to that second level. When we were there, I mean, um, it was interesting. One, one of the ex-players walked up. We, we got to talk to him. His former offensive lineman played in the NFL for a minute. He, uh, it was pretty interesting. He told me his dad played in the NFL. Um, I don't remember his dad's name, but I know the teams he played on at about the time he yeared. And he said his dad played against Reggie White, so that probably would have put him in like the he was in the 80s. But uh, it was pretty interesting. He was sitting there talking a little bit, and I was like, man, that would be pretty interesting as like a father having played and then to have your son come up through UT and go out and play the game. I just think like as a, as a dad to be able to go and talk to your son on that kind of level and be like, I know you're a pretty good player, but like, let me talk to you a little bit about, about this stuff. Is yeah. it still the same? I don't uh, know. I don't know. I'm, well, we were talking to, I guess, uh, was it South Carolina strength coach? And y'all got into like a yeah. super high level offensive lineman conversation. And I, he, he was into it, but yeah. you were talking about small details of teaching kids to punch and then using the bench press as yeah. that, that transfer training tool. Well, where it comes from is, um, uh, like, so when you punch it, as you punch, if you punch with your thumbs up in this position, the elbows down, as you extend, if your hand gets trapped and you get collapsed, you're not going to get your elbow extended. If you punch this way, then as you get extended here and you get trapped, you get hyperextended on your elbow. And so just being able to punch a guy with your thumbs up and then also as you hit on the side of the shoulder pads when you punch, you can actually grab the, you know, on the sides here and work to control yeah. them. If you punch over the, over the top this way, not only will your arm get straight, but you'll grab the top of the shoulder pad, which is how you always get called for holding. Mm-hmm. So like just the intricacies of like how and where you punch and then being able to do enough reps to where your hands go there every time. Like I don't know if you watch those guys today, but when a lot of them punched, they punched with their hands low. So they, as they went to set, they were here and they came up and they always put their hands down. Now, what I always thought about the, you know, the shortest distance between two lines is a straight line. So as I bring my hands up, I would always kind of keep them up here and I would punch or punch my hands because it was shorter. So like when I always watch those guys, every one of them kept their hands low, but, but they were also extremely high. So they were all, you know, uh, a very, you know, played high, a lot, a lot of hip extension opposed from staying low. So like I always tried to bend and then keep my hands high opposed from high and keep your hands low. And it just was, you know, uh, it's, it's a slower punch. So like think about if you're in a street fight and a dude throws a punch from his hip, you're going to see it a mile away opposed from a dude has hands up and he's able to close the distance. Yeah. So we were rapping a little bit about not only like how to punch, but teaching the, you know, teaching compensatory acceleration. And, you know, when we were talking today about your, um, your OC reps, you know, the partials, yeah. uh, the same thing. I mean, cause you know, never in a, in a punching environment would I ever be from here to my chest here. It's actually from here to here. So for a lot of times when we would bring the bar down, it was like bringing it, trying to move it in this direction as fast as possible and then finish. Yeah. So I would bring the bar down, push it up three or four times and then try to lock it out. And, like, that was a really good movement. And then compensatory acceleration, the idea of accelerating my hands was huge. So we started kind of rapping a little bit about, you know, how you punch. And then also um, using your punch. Like he, um, uh, that one dude with the beard or the the guy we were talking about, he kept talking about uh, uh, playing guys head up. 
And I, I didn't say anything to him, but I was like, fuck, man, I never played a dude head up. I would never play a guy nose to nose. I always played two thirds inside out because if I, if I played two thirds inside out, I always wanted to protect my inside because if a dude beat me inside, it was a quicker move to the quarterback, yeah. right? If I play, if I cover him up and I give him the outside, then at least I can drop sit and get him out where I want him to be, right. you know? So just, just pretty interesting watching those guys today when they kind of butted up, but just, I mean, little nuances that if you were to go show them on film and like, let them take notes and then go out and work like, and, and they will, I'm sure they're, I mean, yeah. they're, they're coaches on the fucking yeah. ball and those guys are still young and they're in training camp yeah. first week, you know? And yeah. And, and we also talked about it too, man, like 18 to 22 year old kids are fucking morons. Yeah. Uh, I was a moron. It wasn't until I was like 23, 24, 25 where my brain hardened up and I wasn't such a dipshit. So like seeing those kids, I'm like, damn, like they uh, like to be able to be in this situation and do this job like at this age is like, holy shit, dude, everything is against you mentally. Yeah. You know, you're your own fucking worst enemy. Yeah. You physically, you're probably all. Yeah. Got yeah. The potential. Yeah. It's the I mean, mental you, part. You know, the problem is your dick is leading you around and it's actually way smarter than you are. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, you just yeah, mentally. Downtown Austin's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, those dudes are at practice and they're thinking they're like, man, there's gotta be some hot chicks around instead of thinking like, I need to do the work here so I can go to the weight room so I can get in, you know, those dudes ain't thinking like that. They're just like, shit, I can't wait for first day of school to start so I can see hot chicks in shorts. Right. Which, you know, as an 18 to 22-year-old kid, I, I get it, you know? But I'm looking at it like, this is a great opportunity. You guys get to go play in the NFL. And if you go to go play in the NFL for a bunch of years, like, then you get a super cool life. So, like, pull your head out of your ass. Fucking do this job. Yeah. But then how do you explain that to somebody? Uh, uh, Cal, speaking of details and nuances, we one of our biggest takeaways from Summer Strong in your presentation was the single leg squat with that elevated heel. Yeah. And I guess feeling it well, experiencing it. here's the best thing dude so two years ago when you spoke you were talking about these guys single leg squatting and you were talking about these huge numbers and you went through it uh so when i was at verstegen's place when we were training athletes performance we did a ton of single leg squats the problem is it was like a back squat uh actual single leg squat to a box yeah. so it was kind of like i mean uh, you, you know what i'm talking about yeah. and so when you said single leg squat and like dudes were doing six seven hundred pounds i'm like holy shit dude i did like 315 and they almost freaked out because it was like the heaviest single leg squat they'd ever seen so when you showed the video i was like oh i get it this is uh i i understand yeah because it's like a single leg squat elevated foot safety bar half field yeah. squat right i go foot on the ground but uh so yeah, it's just I call it split squat i guess with the safety bar right so and then uh, we go do you, do you ever do it elevated um, I did, but with the heavy loads, what I found was that um, I like the elevated split squat, but not with the heavy loads, right? Because in the heavy loads, the hips were kind of seemed to be out. Cairo's like, hey, we got a lot of hips misaligned after my first day. I'm like, okay, we'll put the foot on the ground. We won't do that anymore, right? So nothing came of it, right? Other than he was putting a lot of hips back in. So with the elevated hips and five, six hundred pounds, or with the elevated rear foot, I should say, and five, six hundred pounds, just didn't. It wasn't a great alignment, I would say, right? So then with that, with that safety bar, you know, I will, and what I've seen, honestly, guys, with the foot and one of my co-authors and business partners, Chris Corfus, he's a, one of the, I mean, how Chris and I met, he called me, he's like, Cal, I'm doing some triphasic stuff. And, and uh, he was talking to me about it. I'm like, all right. And, you know, he, he said, oh, I'm a high school coach, right? Well, I mean, he's got, 
pro athletes running down his driveway and Olympic medalists and like, wow, okay. I mean, you may train high school kids, but that's, you're more than that. And then he's like, well, yeah, I got, I got, uh, I got six kids with 36 inch verticals in high school. We're doing triphasic and some of the speed stuff I do. And I'm like, wow, send me some video. And these kids had their hands on their hips doing the vertical jump and they were 30. Now they weren't 225 pound linebackers, but they were 170, 180. And you're like, okay, these kids are legit. Right. Um, but, but with Chris and what we're finding is that with that foot, if there's weaknesses in it, I just, I was, I just put some of the connections together. Most of my kids that have hips that are constantly moving out is that their foot doesn't stabilize when they run. So the only thing touching the ground hits ground is your foot. And if the body can't find stability in that foot, then it starts to lock things up. And the next thing it locks up is the hips, right? So the hips are correlating to me with the foot because if that foot's unstable and if there's multiple arches in the foot and that foot has weaknesses when it strikes the ground, then the body knows that and changes its foot positions. It also then changes the, uh, how it functions the hip and that hip can start to lock down. That's what we're seeing. Now, how I teach to make that foot strong with the safety bar squats and I, I told you guys, like, look, I watch my jumpers, I watch my athletes, they play on their toes. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, my one kid, I was top uh, rebounder in the Big Ten that one year. When he jumped, when he came down, he loaded himself to jump and get a rebound quickly. He never hit his heels, right? And so I was like, that's how I coach my plyometrics. And now with the safety single leg bar squat, the split squat, what we have is, you know, my athletes get in that position. Their knees are about probably three to four inches in front of their toes. I know most people don't think that's, that's a thing, but if you watch sports, that's where you play. If you draw the lines, you have your knees in front of your toes the whole time. So then I'm like, okay, I do this squat. I basically squat straight down to my ankle. So my athletes are holding this in a single leg split squat. They take their hip to their ankle because the hip and knee drive down. The foot displaces you in the angles you want to go then, okay? So then... If your foot, so then I'm like, all right, that foot needs to get strong. So when, when their toes are on the ground, their forefoot, the front foot, heels off the ground with five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds on their foot. Now, when you start doing that, that foot's shaky at first. But I'm telling you, by the second week, it's rock solid. And I knew that was a good thing. And guess what? The kids start jumping fast or jumping higher. Because, look, if your hip is super strong and your knee's super strong, your foot transfers about 34 to 35% of the force in running out of through the foot. And if that thing's weak and it's a spring, and that foot is a spring mm-hmm. with the arch, what you'll find is that if it's weak, then you lose some of that force being produced by your knees and hips. And I told John, you look at my kids, and there's a strong correlation between how strong their feet are and how big their butts are. Yeah. There's a you, if you break your ankle, your glutes stop firing. There's a correlation between the foot and the. Uh, now you know you look at well. Well, I tell this story. I was out at San Diego at one of the Olympic trials, and I, I was fortunate to be down by the Olympic, the hundred meter sprinters, right? Training for you know the, these are the guys that want to go to the Olympics, and when the gun went off, I could feel the vibrations in the ground, and the only thing hitting the ground was their forefeet went through acceleration, right? And you're going, wow, there's a lot of force there. So you're saying if that foot is weak, and you look at these world-class sprinters, their foot is not, now most of them have super thick feet and big, but you're like, even if it's not big, that foot has to be strong. It has to be strong and function at a high level. It's, it's crazy. So I find that that's why when I put that safety bar squat on their back 
and they do that, and you probably find it on my YouTube page, you can see some of that stuff, that foot gets super strong, and a lot of the weaknesses come out of that foot and then the hip for stability. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, we're, yeah, Dude, we're having fun with it. Yeah, no, we, yeah, we, we've been using it uh, a ton of it. Um, and it looks more athletic, right? You get somebody... feels... Yeah, looks and feels more. Well, the, uh, you know, the hard thing, and, and this is where we were kind of wrapping a little bit earlier today, is like, you know, with the triphasic, um, you know, going through it, trying to figure out like in a uh, training, you know, like a training environment working with athletes, it's a, you know, it's a very real model. But then you take somebody and we get like, I got an email, I think I was telling you from a guy who was like, hey, I'm trying to do triphasic in my garage by myself. How do I do it? Yeah. And I was like, my, you know, and, and I wanted to be like, ah, uh, well, here's Cal Dietz's email. Well, Cal, you know, like I just told the dude, I was like, hey, man, I think that there's elements of triphasic that you can do, you know, with the, yep. you know, the eccentrics, the, you know, the isometrics. I don't know how you do heavy eccentrics by yourself. Well, you can do an assisted list, John, probably. You know what I mean? Let's I mean, say you, you do a back squat, right? Yeah. But, but you can't do 80% on an eccentric back squat by yourself because you need help out of the hole in most cases. Right? Yeah, I but mean, you could do an RDL. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could do the assisted. You could do some of the stuff. And you'll still get an, a, a pretty good effect. Yeah, right? I mean, like, I, you know, uh, could I use a leg press? And I was like, no, I don't think that would work the same way. But, like, it just kind of came down to this deal, like, uh, um, you know, how could somebody, and I think we were, you know, we were putting the safety bar or put the, uh, um, the split squat with the elevated foot in, we were, we showed it with a straight bar. Cause then all, you know, like say the people working with don't have a sweet yeah. safety squat bar. If we show with that, they're going to be like, well, I can't do the movement on a safety squat right. bar. So we were kind of showing it with the bar on the back. And actually it's pretty funny watching the videos now of people doing kind of a freestanding, uh, split squat with the foot elevated with the bar, holding the bar on their back. They're pretty fucking good at it. Yeah. But the big thing is that making sure that they're that they're lunging wide enough, like their squat's a wide enough position, because if they're too narrow, then they fall over. So like seeing that stable position yep. and actually watching some of the videos, I'm like, yes, this is fucking awesome. Right. And they're like, man, I feel like I'm getting better. So like even that modification, while not perfect, is still better yeah. than, you know, Have, um, is there any place in your program where you throw in some bilateral squatting? Oh, usually that Wednesday. Right. Yeah. That Wednesday would be a, I could either do squats or, um, the safety bar squats. Do you, do you use the safety yeah. bar squat yeah. a lot? Yeah. The, the straight double leg safety bar squat. And, and actually, I, I think I said it summer strong when, uh, we went eight weeks without, without squatting and we only did single leg safety bar, the single leg safety bar Monday and Fridays. And we did safety bar on Wednesdays. And I had strong men. There are all about, uh, I think the average max was five, 597 on back squat. And then we went to like a uh, right around 660 over eight weeks and never back squatted. Wow. So the back squat went up 60 pounds with the super maximal loading on the single leg and then just normal 90 plus percent on the safety bar squat. And we didn't practice the skill of back squat. And then actually what happened was... We threw back squat in there, and back squat kept climbing even after that max day. You know what I mean? Because you're just learning the skill. Well, yeah, but yeah. also I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, man, uh, if you can learn to safety squat or squat with the safety bar well, when you go back to back squatting, it's almost like a little bit of a vacation. Yeah. Like the bar is in a good position. You don't feel like it's fucking stapling you forward. Right. and like It's a good safety know. or yeah. it's a good um, it's a good alternative. And you know? if we think about the limitations or limiting factors or things that get in the way of the back squat and then that single leg squat that you have set up, specifically attacks those right, right. hips feet uh, yeah. hamstrings a lot of the different things glutes firing so it's, it's almost setting them up for more 
successful skill, no like question. you say, skill of back squat. Yeah. And the, 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 the catch is I tell people like, look, I got girls that, that don't want to back squat more than 185 because it's not a comfortable bar on their shoulders. Right. But I got them back or uh, single leg safety bar squatting. 325 because it feels comfortable and they're willing to push that because they've you know the weight's not comfortable but you're sitting here you're going look it they it's not bothering their back when they're holding it on there so they're willing to push through the other comfort uh, discomfort you know what i mean and plus they don't have a lot of meat on their back some of them so they're like yeah that bar probably irritates them but the safety bar squat is a huge it's just a training tool that hacks the stress uh what about strict pull-ups for the female athlete so we, we've got some approaches, but I'm curious of your approach, freshman, female, she'd never lifted weights. How do you, I guess, incorporate to get them knocking out strict pull-ups? Ooh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty much we'll, we'll put bands and we'll do assisted pull-ups. And, well, the eccentric helps, right? Mm-hmm. We go through an eccentric training cycle, and they're usually – because i got girls that can't do them, and then they come in. And usually by that eccentric or the isometric phase, they can start to do a, a one or two. Uh, you dude, know? Uh, you know, we found out that actually doing uh, – starting with like a flex arm hang, actually, you know, yep. and then basically fighting through the eccentric range yep. of motion – uh, by doing that, we, I remember when we were at Balboa, when I owned my uh, commercial gym, we took two groups of people, ones that, uh, would jump up, hold into position max, and then basically do the eccentric load opposed from people that were learning to do pull-ups with bands. The people that did the eccentric load with the isometrics, uh, got pull-ups within weeks. The people that were on band like months later still were, you know, couldn't yeah. get off the bands. No, right. Yeah. And that eccentric loading is a, is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Especially the girls, you know, they respond pretty well. The girls, uh. Yeah, I mean, I, I get a look at the girls and the men. Like they're they're two different they're two different types of athlete. There's no question. You know, the girls um, to me they can handle actually they can handle some of the pain stuff a little bit better. I think maybe the men ramp it up really fast. And I don't know if there's more pain or less pain with the men or women, but but mentally when the women are together in a group, it seems like they can handle some more pain. It's pretty crazy. It, 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 I don't know. You know, I think women are built. Women were built to survive. Men were built for battle. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's be honest. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, they, they're, they're more, uh, I think, uh, honestly, I feel that when I do my aerobic training, they respond faster, more effectively. So they're more of an aerobic organism the way I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we, we found something pretty interesting in that, um, you know, obviously, you know, two contributing factors for central nervous system efficiency, one being higher testosterone levels and the other one being, you know, opportunity, the more reps somebody's been given, um, you know, and, uh, you know, men produce, you know, uh, testosterone in the testes and also the um, adrenals, women just in the adrenals. But what was interesting is that if that is true, and actually I picked this up from Louis Simmons because he told me the, uh, uh, the higher somebody's test levels are, the more efficient their nervous system. And so they were, you know, supplementing and, you know, he said that they, uh, cause when I asked him on like Prilipin's table, I'm like, you know, why is it that, you know, it shows a range of, let's say like, you know, four to seven with a max of 10, you know, and he made an interesting point. He said, you know, for the natural lifter, you got to do 10 reps to get the same, uh, same response that the guy that these guys are getting with four because their nervous systems are so much more efficient from the elevated testosterone levels. I would say they're el- the nervous system. So, so by more efficient, does he mean more is available to put, has more output? Yeah. 
But then yet you will over, you can overtrain. He, he just said that their ability to, uh, you know, motor unit recruitment, yep. they were able to recruit a higher motor and a more efficient nervous system the higher the test levels were. Mm-hmm. So what we took a step back and we did some testing at my gym with, uh, with girls realizing like, hey, they're never going to have as high a test level. So they're, you know, theoretically might not have the same uh, nervous system efficiency. So then we were looking at it and being like, okay, well, let's test some girls, one RMs, and let's do some Hatfield, like muscle field testing or uh, like muscle fiber testing. So we had girls working up to a one RM and then doing drop sets, 80% max reps. And it's like Hatfield was like, oh, if you get, you know, four to seven reps, you're more fast twitch. If you get more than seven, you're more, you know, slow twitch. So all of a sudden we're having these girls do one RMs and dropping them down to 80. And, you know, we had one girl get 32 reps. Yeah, right. I see. You know, and so they're like maxing this stuff out. I can't get anywhere near seven or eight reps mm-hmm. at my 80%. No. You know, like, I, I mean, it was like for an act of God for me to get that. And like these girls are getting 32 reps yeah. and people are like, how is it? I'm like, well, it's not, it's, it's basically like they are able to handle a higher percentage of their, of their one RM for more reps mm-hmm. because not as efficient a nervous system, but they'll be able to handle more, more load, yep. you know, and it's not that, uh, that's really their 80%. It's just that, that it's not a true one RM because when they haven't had opportunity, you got to get good at that stuff. Right. And you know, what yeah, I figured no. for, you know, physiology wise. Yeah. There's no question the females are, um, uh, when, when, when we do like long duration ISO stuff, they seem to be able to handle it at a better at a better level there's no doubt right and, and you talked about that at summer strong and cool thing you did was the, i guess the lactic acid pooling yeah. it's the internal oh, yeah. internal occlusion well yeah so we went yeah. back and looked at it and actually by uh you know when the when the uh, lactic acid pool is actually forcing the joint angle closed yeah. is uh you know they they call it internal occlusion oh dude. yeah so there's some research coming out about it so about oh. internal occlusion well you know with the inclusion how it fatigues yep. fast twitch yep. and slow twitch muscle fibers sure. and r- ramps up growth hormone and myostatin and all the other cool stuff yeah that you know and, and bottom line with what i call it it's the uh i just had a what do i call it with the uh when we run up the steps, what was it? I can't remember the term I used. I, I mean, Hank showed it to me. It was the, it's on my YouTube thing. Uh, gosh, what was I, it? I forget. It's in my notes. Cal, I wish we could go back and actually, when you on your YouTube, go back and kind of arrange things a little bit in sequence a little bit, or even kind of the searchable function isn't as easy as it needs to be. No, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so if there's an intern out there that wants to, Help Cal Dietz right, kind of right, categorize right. all that stuff because there's so much information in there that it's kind of like, holy shit. Well, you're like, and in, in the girls do respond well to those uh, lactate retention method, yep. right? So w- for everybody, what it is is they'll do a 30-second sprint, thir- 30 to 40-second sprint up the steps, and when they get to the top, instead of walking and flushing out the lactate, we actually just hold it in for another 30 to 40 seconds so we get adaptations. And, uh, yeah, the girls actually do respond pretty well to that stress. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. Because what I did was, so with the lactate, it appears that they seem to get more muscular builds with the lactate response. Right? Is there, uh, there going to be a triphasic for bodybuilding? Yeah, you know, I've, people have asked me to maybe look into that, right? So I, it's just not my interest. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, I, I, But, I mean, if, if you think about, like, uh, and I don't mean in terms of, like, bodybuilding, getting you up there posing in shorts or anything weird, but I meant, like, um, you know, cause we run into a ton of people that are, you know, like, uh, want to train athletically to want to do a performance style of training, but need to put on muscle. Right. 
And I like I've talked to numerous people and been like, everything looks pretty good. You just need to be bigger. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, larger cross-sectional size of a muscle theoretically will be able to support more muscle. You're super efficient. Like, just get fucking bigger and everything's going right. to like fill in on this. I mean, yeah, some more time under tension always helps. Right. But to me. To me, I, I, I tell this story I, when I was a young strength coach and I had I had kids on triphasic uh, 20 some years ago. Right. I just didn't have a name for it till about 15 years ago. I had a football player wrestler. They were in the same roommates. One, one had to not put on any weight, the wrestler, and the other one had to put on a bunch of weight. They did the same program. One put on like 27 pounds. The other put on two because he walked around hungry, right? <laughs> and that's the... Yeah, we've talked about this. Yeah, like, you know, it's, it's really the nutrition part yeah. of it. Yeah, because triphasic, you're guaranteed to get a hormonal release. Like there's, especially, that's why the super maximal, why people get results is because there's a huge hormonal response. You know what I mean? Um, more volume doesn't get you more hormonal response. It's the intensity that gets you more. I mean, that's why sprinters look like sprinters and distance people look like distance sure. people. There's no, there's an actual negative hormonal response yeah. running all that time. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're like, Hey, I would need a huge and intense weight workout that causes a crazy cortisol or a crazy hormonal response. And then with the sets that I do under 10 seconds all the time, I get uh, I get a less of a cortisol response, in my opinion. So people talk about time under tension and building muscle. Well, to me, it's that was you got a response from the workload. But when I do 10 second sets with my baseball team, I think it was, and I had guys putting on in uh, eight weeks 16 pounds, and we only did 10 second sets the whole week. That was it. But it was really intense. And I tell people it didn't cause a huge cortisol response like a 30 second set would. Because cortisol is going to break, you know, break tissue down. So I was like, well, I got less of a cortisol response in my training. So my theory is I put on three blocks and only took one off. Versus sometimes bodybuilding, you may put on three or four blocks and maybe take two or three off because there's a huge cortisol response. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, a, it's a way of managing your hormone levels. Because I, I had hormone issues with or cortisol issues with a lot of my guys because, again, they're hockey players and they do a lot of interval, intense interval stuff. So cortisol is a common problem with older hockey players, especially around the age of 25. Well, by doing 10-second sets all summer and not getting into lactate, I helped them manage that problem. Yeah. So. And I, know, I know we spoke of it inside. Can you talk about the importance, I guess, of maintaining a focus for at least a week at a time? Because... A lot of coaches, when they're writing a program, they got a lot of boxes to check or there's, I'm thinking CrossFit here where we're trying to, you know, constantly mix things up. But how important is it, is it to focus at least a week at a time at an adaptation? Yeah. So I stepped back years ago and I was like, all right, how do I get the most out of adaptation? Right. And uh, the problem is when you mix stuff. So, for example, if somebody's going to start training, we're all three of us go into this train, say, hey, we're going to do a powerlifting meet. And then a week later, we're going to do or the next day, we're going to go run a triathlon or something. Do a tri Like you can't train for those and be successful. There's not even enough drugs in the world to make because you only have so much biological energy to adapt. Well, then I'm like, OK, so you can't adapt to that and be successful but what so so the other end of that spectrum I, I got to look and i'm like well what if i adapt to very specific how can i make my training program so specific for adaptation and then i got to realizing well you know in europe 1960s there's 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 papers showing that they trained for time right i mean these coaches were training for time to try to match up what they were doing on the track to what they were doing in the weight room sure 
So then I realized, like, if I, if I set everything this day at, at, at a 10 seconds, doesn't sound like a lot, but it's killer, or five seconds even. Well, shit, if you're doing an, a, a bottom hold isometric hold for 10 seconds, opposed yeah. from a heavy centric for 10 seconds. It's ugly. That's ugly. I mean, uh, a concentric movement for 10 seconds might be a rep or two. But right. like, hey, get to the bottom, and I want you to hold this bottom position for 10 seconds. I mean, shit, it's like the Titanic sinking. We're, we're hitting that in Ezekiel a little bit. Oh, I, dude, it's coming. Don't worry. There's a, So we're, we've been working on this program, and I called it uh, Ezekiel 2417. You remember? 25. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. 2517, right? From, yeah. uh, from uh, Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, I just, I just yeah. nicknamed it that. But, yeah, but it's, it's got some isometrics, and we're doing some fun yeah, stuff with isometrics. It, they get ugly, and it's tough. Well, it's, it's actually, I told you guys, it's like 20 30% more metabolic than an eccentric loading, where you're going down slow for 10 seconds, right? Then you go all the way to the bottom where you're the weakest, and you hold that for 10 seconds in an isometric. It's way more taxing than even the 10-second the eccentric, right? So, Is there, um, when you pick, like, uh, you know, obviously the bottom of the squat, but do, do you ever pick various joint angles? Like, um, no, because I just was like, I need to get to the weakest position and make them the strong there. And then, cause like, let's say you know, you, where you're the weakest, always at the bottom, always at the bottom. Right. Cause I, I, you know, you do a three, if your bench is 300 pounds, if you're 300 pounds max, really it's your mini maximum because that's your measurement of what, now if you put four boards in there, I can do 360 yeah. maybe. Right. So I was like, I'm just going to stay in the weakest spot because I've never had a problem with somebody missing something at the top. Usually, you know what I mean? It's always in the weakest position. So I always just stayed at the, at the, the bad joint angle, mm-hmm. the weakest. Right. So, um, but to get back to your point about adaptation is that, look, you can't do, the powerlifting training on Monday and in in aerobic triathlon on Tuesday, you just won't do it. So then I was like, all right, I got to make this as specific as possible. So I would take, and we're going to train for seven, maybe 10 seconds, the same every day, all the time for a two week block. And it was crazy how fast my kids adapted to that because the problem is it's not a problem if you're adapting to everything that's the same duration. So I tell people we warm up, then we lift for seven seconds. We'll do speed training. How long do you think it is? It's seven seconds of speed training. So whether agility drills, seven seconds, whether it's top end speed flying 90s, it's seven seconds. Then when we go squat or we do do certain lifts, it's seven seconds. And then when we go condition, it's seven seconds. How many days a week are the guys in the gym? Five. So five. Oh and then um, are they training, uh, you know, full body every single day? Is it broken yeah, up at upper lower? It's upper lower. It's legs, upper legs, upper legs. And then on on Friday, people say, well, you throw in some sets to failure for upper, even though you've done max effort on uh, Thursday, right? Well, I'm like, yeah, but it's a fatigue day. So they're already fatigued. I know that. I don't care. So, um, but the point is, is that you can't do a 30 second set on Monday and then a, and then a 10 second set on Tuesday and get the max adaptions out of both. You know what I mean? I just, you just couldn't do it, right? So if you do things, that, the body can get very good at adapting to very specific stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And by cross-training so much, I just couldn't get the most out of my athletes. It just Did, never happened. Uh, do you go to failure? I mean, like, is it like, hey, um, you know, like, let's say you're like, hey, I'm, we're going to do 10-second sets, and uh, my goal is, you know, for you today, I want you to do, yeah. let's say, 12 sets. Right. And so, uh, you know, you get to number you know, 12 and the person is still fucking rock, you know, rocked up and like no issues. And you're like, Hey man, let's do 13. Let's throw them on. Um, only when I got some studs and I can call them out like, yeah, you're, you're dialed in like, um, but most of my kids are all pretty close to the same level. So I know where we drop off and I know what we got to get to. Um, but you know, yeah, I'll go to failure, John. Cause you know, if a kid's 
if a kid takes 600 in the hole for 10 seconds, he, I guess he can't take it out. Right. So he's it's fail. I mean, we've hit failure. So if he takes 600 in the the hole, holds it for 10 seconds on a single leg safety bar squat, he only weighs 185. He can't move it out. He can barely hold it any longer. And we we help him up with it. Yeah, I probably I mean, so it's the failure at times. Yeah. So but but then he um, you know, I was thinking about like uh, not necessarily the 10 second, but like the total load of sets. Right. So, I mean, like you, you probably have a predetermined deal. I'm just wondering, like, if like, let's say you were like, hey, man, like yeah. today we're going to get 12 and then by 10, he can't even yeah. hold it for five yeah. seconds. Well, you know what I did? I, I called it. Um, what I do is I'll basically get a pre- now some of my freaks. I'll put them on plans where I go, OK, hey, you'll do a squat jump before you do this. And, and let's say they jump 30 inches, hands on the hips, and then they start set one. And then when they're done with all the sets, French contrast, maybe, whatever, they come back. And before they go for set two, they jump again. And let's say it's 33 now. That's their new standard. And they'll go until they drop off. They'll keep doing sets until when they come back to do that vertical jump, if they're less than um, 5%. So on a 33, it'd be 31 and a half inches, mm-hmm. right? So I'll use a, um, I call it a parametric another bioparametric so you're using another metric versus a, like instead of hooking yeah. a tendo up you'll use the just the jump mat it's pretty simple to get stuff if you standardize that it's a pretty basic mm. and they'll, they'll just jump until they they can't get within five percent of their best effort does that make sense yeah 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 I mean, that's the same with, like, the Charlie Francis sprint stuff where, you know, you got to run within 92% of your fastest right. time. It's if it drops thing. off, then you're done because, you know, then it's going to be negatively affecting your speed and it's a, you know, tempo day. I mean, that's where I got my regulation. Auto-regulation training is basically the drop-offs. I mean, my sprint coach would be like, yeah. I'm like, how many are you running? He's like, I don't know. He's like, until they hit such and such a time, they go, they're going to keep running. <laughs> but <laughs> if their aerobic base is bigger, they, yeah, can, they can handle do more, more load. They can recover they, faster. But they recover. That's the key. They can recover. Is the aerobic base going to help them sprint faster? No. Yeah. It's going to help them recover to do more sprints, which will help so, them run. Yeah, because they can do more work. Yes. I mean, that was my thing. Like, you know, I had a couple freaks. Uh, when I say that, like, you're 80%. You said you could get for six. I mean, this kid couldn't do it for more than five, but he had a 44-inch vertical. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, wow. And he was an elite shot putter discus, you know, and you're like, well, okay. But um, the catch is that you've got to get his aerobic base built up mm-hmm. without interfering with the speed and the strength. And that was the, the catch for me. And I, felt, I found these circuits. The contralaterals seemed to help without interfering with strength. And then the singles back and forth, which we'd already talked about, were able to keep a guy's strength up. And because, you know, John, if you do bench and squat back and forth for 10 minutes, take a five-minute rest, then you do maybe a lap pull-down singles with, with uh, an RDL, and you do that for 10 minutes, and you do four sets of that, you got 40 minutes of your heart rate at 160. You know what I mean? As a 50% low, with 50% on the bench. You got a lot of reps. Lyman love it. Now, I had one freak uh, Olympic caliber wrestler. He went as high as 70% on each lift and was able to go Was back. he uh, 10 reps? No, he was only doing singles. Oh, so was, he was just doing one rep? One rep, but he was 70% of his training max. Or so, his max. so he was doing one squat, one bench. At 70%. At, at, well, well, yeah, or, so, so you said the guys were using 50 or starting They're doing 50. it 50%. How many times are they going back and forth? Well, in a 10-minute cycle, I mean. Oh, you, just max reps. Yeah, you just go on a single on bench, single on squat. Gotcha. You go singles back and forth, and you're cranking that out for singles. And, and some guys got How many the, sets do you think they got? Oh, 40. Nice. So they're doing 40 singles at yeah. 50%, right? And you're going, okay, but their heart rate is at 150 to 160. Sure. So that's their aerobic block of training. That's like jogging a mile. Sure. You know what I mean? Let's be honest. 
it, the heart thinks you just jogged a mile because there's yeah. no difference. Because if I had him jog a mile, the heart would probably be a 10 minute mile. They might be at 160, right? Fat guy, yeah. like John. Yeah. Yeah. Chubby. <laughs> the the old good. NFL trot. Yeah. Ah, I don't do it, man. I, I was watching those guys do their fucking, uh, what do you used to call like the O line fucking shuffle? They're like, <laughs> kind of like, shh, 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 shh. I was the worst, man. I used to literally just take off running and then I would stand there and like put my hands up and they'd be like, this fucking asshole. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> Just make looking people look bad. It's good. Yeah, Yeah, it's fun. What what else I got? Let me think. Um, We got into speed. We got into strength. Um, I just think the time under tension is super interesting on basically setting those things. But, I mean, you you almost have to because, I mean, how else are you going to do the eccentrics? I'm just thinking, like, riding a fucking, you know, 600-pound single-leg back squat into or uh, single-leg squat into, like, the bottom of the hole for 10 seconds. It's ugly. It's called oh. call it the pain cave. It's cold, deep, dark, lonely, and wet, right? Yeah. It's ugly. How, uh, and then you got what, like three assistants, one on either side, one on the back, well, you're basically just picking people up? Well, yeah, we got the kids helping spot and then, you know, interns. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it, to do super maximal loading with that, you need th- four people. You got one guy to do the lift and usually two on each um, guy on each side, one in the back. I guess you don't need the one in the back. We don't always have that, but this guy's on the side, yeah. How, uh, what do you think the recovery time is? I mean, I know it differs for everybody, yeah. but is it, I mean, can guys be able to put that through within 30 seconds, 90 seconds, five minutes? Um, my guys can can crank maybe heart rates. Some of my freaks, the heart rate was back down in like 45 seconds, but I don't throw. So we'll, we'll do that. Then we jump into some hurdles, do some French contrast, right? And then after that, I usually go about two and a half minutes after they complete everything which is only take them about a minute and a half or two, or probably a minute. So then my guys, their heart rate back down to like 95 at two minutes, honestly. Now I had a couple of freaks finish it in like 45 seconds, but you're like, well, but do I make them go? No, because I, I mean, even when the heart rate was down, their body, it told me everything was recovered, but when I put them in to do the next set, it wasn't as it was high quality. So I'm like, yeah, they, they still have some. So I, I got the heart rate, the vascular, the metabolic system was better, but the nerve energy wasn't there. You know what I mean? Sure. The signal from the brain. So then I turn around and need a sodium load, I guess, right? Yeah, hit them with it. Yeah. Uh, let's jump into the uh, RPR. Okay. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so for those of you guys listening, um, Cal has this, uh, this voodoo uh, called RPR, which stands for, ref- what is it? Reflexive. Re- reflexive. Performance reset. Performance reset. So basically what he does is he goes through and he actually works the fascia and does releases to try to clear muscles. Very similar to what, um, you know, along the same vein of uh, our good friend Dr. Bueller and what he's done. But, uh, I mean, it's the only other time I've ever seen actually muscles not fire and then be able to go through right. and get those muscles to fire. You talk a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, for people that never heard about it, I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And really, uh, a little background story. I'm, I'm fortunate I have coaches walk through my facility all the time. You know, in the last, I think I've had a few out, uh, out of, from out of country. I've had four coaches from out of the country in the last seven weeks and visit me. And a coach basically came through was swinging in he's like i got something to show you and he's like i he, so i gave him one of my assistants that he's this guy was broken right and uh he was starting the training process and i'm like all right and he fixed stuff within seconds that this kid had this problems and i was like and this kid had stuff from high school from brain injuries or uh, con- severe concussions right and i'm just like all right where is this guy that taught you this he's in south africa i'm like get him on i told him i said get him on the phone i'll pay him whatever 10 grand i'll fly to south africa and i'll learn this 
And it was like, found out that he was coming to Chicago in two weeks. So I was uh-huh. like, ah, oh, I'm in. <laughs> it's Chicago. That's a lot cheaper, right? <laughs> South Africa is a long flight. Yeah, and, and, you yeah. know, and the guy that kind of started it was uh, Douglas Heal, a good friend of mine, and he's still, he's still he's involved with RPR, um, but he's in South Africa. So, and uh, what it is is the, the thing about it was I tell people I started this with Chris Corfus and J.L. Holsworth because, look, when kids walk in my door, I can tell or assess them with what's wrong. So I tell people, hey, if something's not working, this kid's going to get knee pain. It's the kid's knee pain. It's not mine. But when I start squatting him and training him in triphasic, if, if I don't fix that problem, like I'm probably going to get blamed for the knee pain, right? And that's the thing with all the strength coaches. Like, oh, and they don't even get like, look, this kid's got knee pain. It must be the squats he's doing. Wait a minute. I'm doing squats with 700 kids we don't have 700 knee pain problems. Sure. It's actually the kid's problem, right? Mm-hmm. So long story short, I mean, and then what RPR does is it's a simple method where we've made it so that, hey, I got my athletes. People come and visit me. One guy from, from Africa this year, another guy from Ireland. I want to see you do RPR. I'm like, I don't need to do RPR because my athletes do it every day on themselves in their warm-up. It's, it's like foam rolling for the nervous system, yeah. right? So you do foam rolling on your muscles. This is foam rolling. Literally, uh, I just did it for a school. They timed me. Minute, 45 seconds. I did all my RPR spots before my workout. I'm ready to go. I don't even warm up anymore. I feel really good about myself, right? I just hit my nice. RPR spots, and we go. And I really wasn't good at warm-ups before, to be honest with you. I drink a little coffee. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I do like that one. Drink a little coffee, scratch your butt, yeah. like, kind of like, uh, let me roll well, around. Yeah, yeah. Swing your legs a little bit, and you're ready well, to go. Well, John, in, in text, you guys felt it as soon as, especially with your, your, your hip flexors, they weren't working very well. A few seconds, boom, we had them on, right? And, and you're sitting here going, okay, there was a difference. Something happened. And, and the reason we call it reflex, because that's a reflex. RPR is a series of reflexes that have been found. I mean, these are even documented in research where these reflexes cause instantaneous responses. Cause that's, and it goes to the brain. The brain help rewires that muscle. And now you get an instantaneous response. And people are like, well, does it last 10 seconds? I'm like, well, I've seen it last six months. And athletes that don't don't have very many problems, right? Now you break your ankle or roll it, and your glute shuts off. I can get it turned on, but if if that's still broken or still hurts, after about four hours, it's going to turn off because the signal's mm-hmm. not right, right? Sure. Your body knows. But you know, the big thing is that we get the right patterns going, and then guys go out and train, and hopefully that help ingrains the right mm-hmm. patterns. That's what I found. Yeah. So, yeah, so if you're clearing the muscle, then when you go out and train, then that muscle ends up becoming more, I guess, useful and in a better passage, which kind of is like the, you know, snowball effect opposed from just going in and beating your and fucking head beating, in the wall yeah. same time over and again. Yeah, and, you know, we have chiros teach our courses and PTs, and they're finding the, the chiros that if we get these compensations cleared and, and I adjust somebody, they're very easy to adjust and they actually stay longer. So, you know, uh, I just fortunate I found it. I actually, I'll be honest with you, I kept it secret for a number of years. I didn't tell anybody. Um, I mean, people that knew I was doing it, obviously my business partners knew and they were doing it. And Chris, Chris was actually the one that I contacted to go to the course because, and then we hit it off pretty well. And, and Chris and I are like, hey, you know, at some point we're like, this has got to be used by every high school coach in the country right because again these high school coaches they got to teach english they got to do whatever and then they got to come in and be a strength coach you're like huh we got to give them this tool to help them fix help get their kids where you know look high school 
they don't have as many problems, but they find that they get good results with it. You know what I mean? So, and, um, yeah, it's a, it's a useful tool. It's some, something that we have to incorporate in our deal, like, you know, our kids, Hey, if we don't tell them to do it, they do it on their own. And y'all are creating that opportunity to educate these high school coaches online. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're actually, our PR is probably going online in the next uh, two to four weeks. So we're hoping somewhere in September of uh, 218. Nice. I'm stoked. Now I'm I'm kind of a little bummed as you were going through and doing it on me. That was like, man, I wish I had all the notes so I could just basically start doing it on my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, get over here. Let me start rubbing on you. Yeah. I was trying to do it to uh, I was trying to do it to my daughters and they were like ow right, my right, wife's right. like stop pushing so hard I'm like you're next yeah the jaw that yeah. probably hurt the yeah, most yeah. for the glutes right yeah I don't know if I can push yeah. on my jaw as hard as Cal pushed on my jaw yeah I was just trying to make sure I got it like you can do it yourself and you don't always have to push hard like it's pretty crazy um, like people get a response if they just do the spots on themselves right um i was making sure I w- we were short on time i wanted to make sure we got this podcast in so yeah. I, I got after you guys a little bit right so i think it's great i just john, you know john I, dropped the safety word no yeah. i didn't no yeah. never <laughs> yeah. never hear me fucking, uh, i also have this terrible response to pain where i laugh yeah i don't know if you heard me as it yeah. started to hurt i just started laughing yeah. like everybody's like ow i just think it's funny like right. pain to me is uh, a comedic well i i don't think in the pretty brain, sick chubs <laughs> i think uh tick like ticklish and pain are almost the same response in yeah the same I'm area not, yeah I'm not really I ticklish right um, yeah i, I think yeah. i got tickled too much as a kid when i was right. little and i fucking locked it out but i'll tell you this like if something hurts real bad my wife's like i know something hurts when you start laughing i'm like yeah it you, fucking happens you're a weird guy ace <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just how you deal with pain. Everybody else, like, uh, you know, pain is like, you know, some terrible thing. I always thought about it as like a receipt for hard work. Right. You know, pain's like, that's the receipt. That's the fucking check I cashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, But yeah, like, you know, I've worked on you guys, but, you know, ultimately this whole system is built on that the the person does it to themselves two, three, four, five times a week. And it's more effective than having somebody there working on you. Right. So it's it's really a user based model because, I mean, I got. Um, Steve Jones, he's got the longest winning streak in the nation This in high school football. He's won six straight titles in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, he came. I mean, this commitment, this is football. This is Super Bowl Sunday. When I scheduled a clinic, I didn't know. It was in uh-huh. Minneapolis. He drove to Minneapolis. Football high school coach probably wanted to watch Super Bowl, but realized how important this was. Did it, and then goes back, and uh, they implement it with their school that week. And he had no physiology background, right? He's a uh, high school coach, does a great job. He teaches some leadership stuff that's pretty impressive, especially needed at our high school level, right? And uh, it was pretty effective, and they're implementing it, and it's, it's pretty awesome to see that we scaled this to a level that, hey, a high school coach with no physiology background can come in and learn this and then teach it to his athletes and to his coaches so that they implement it. Yeah, so that, that's a big thing. Because you know what? You, you have all these systems, and they all work from – from Dr. Bueller to chiropractic medicine to, to uh, you know, any, any of these massages, anything that people do, and all these other methods, they work, but they're, they're not a user-based model, right, where this is, can be a user-based sure. model. That's the goal. Well, I mean, too, I mean, it, it, it's kind of what you have to do. I mean, you know, you think about, like, if you had to bring in practitioners to train and then get, like, somebody to touch these kids, it just wouldn't work in a school environment. It's never going to work. No. no, they can touch themselves. They can do it. But I mean, I, I love the idea of being able to go through and do each of these every day in a warm up, right. and then be like, okay, you know. And, and I mean, we saw how many things were shut down. I mean, on both of us, 
And, uh, I mean, he even said it to me today when we were walking around. He's like, you look kind of locked up. I'm like, yeah, I fucking feel pretty locked up. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't kill yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. So, so people say, oh, I'm, I'm on now. I'm like, yeah, you're on. And then, and then you know what? I, I've seen things happen where, hey, like, literally, kid has a bad, let's say, for example, he fails a test that was really important. It might cause him ineligible or whatever. Things actually shut down. Because you're stressed, right? Yeah. So we are stressed. You know, uh, I, I've seen kids that have, have lost grandparents they've been close to. And, I mean, I'm talking a rock-solid kid, kid that's always on. Boom. Something hits him like that, they shut down. You know? And so you're like, this, that's the human part of us. Just because you think you can handle anything and, and you can handle any amount of stress, but there's a reaction to that stress, and that's the bad part. So what do I do? I usually just have them... They can't train heavy, you know, in that situation. Um, I, actually, I stopped back squatting in exam weeks years ago because I was like, man, why do all these back problems show up midterms or in finals? I just pulled them. It's because the extra stress on their body. You know, the other day was a move-in day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I trained one summer. I had all these kids training and back, you know, we were back squatting. We're lifting heavy loads, triphasing, we get it. Move-in day, we had kids move in, and then they came into the gym in the afternoon I had like six back problems. I'm like, what's going on here? And it was the move in. It was the extra stress of carrying stuff up the steps. Boom. You know what? So I, I learned quickly to, if, if there's any question, just default them to an aerobic lift. And, you know, people don't understand when they say, oh, aerobic day, what'd you do, bike? I'm like, no. You can take a heavy 90% load day, drop it to 50%, add more reps, and just do that lift in a circuit style, and it's an aerobic day to me, in recovery. You know what I mean? That aerobic system is, is just use it. The aerobic system doesn't need much recovery, in my opinion. It's a nervous system and the heavy loads. So I always default to the aerobic lift, and uh, no question default. If you feel bad, just default to the aerobic lift, because you can come in the next day and then kill your lift, you know? So, um, yeah, that, I'll be honest with you, that, that uh, the whole aerobic aspect, I think it's... It can be plugged in at any time. I plug it in a heartbeat. I find even on days where people are stressed, like if we have a away game and a home, and we lose, and we come home, we're we're beat up. Yeah, you know what I mean. Versus, hey, if we lose at home, we're not so bad. We win at home, they're in great spirits. Even when I had a download day scheduled, I test some guys. I'm like, holy, we got some great numbers. We're gonna train. Scrap the download week. We're going to train because we look good. But, yeah. you know, exam week, I, I had it one time. And Brian Mann came out with those results. Like, hey, you're more likely to get hurt on midterm week than you are in two-a-day football camp. Mm. They had more injuries. Why? It's just accumulation of stress. And same thing happened in Minnesota. I had, a, I had a number of my teams not perform well midterm exams. I looked at football when we should have beat somebody and we didn't. You know what I mean? Volleyball was ranked number one in the country there. And they, they lost that week. You're like, wait a minute. It all adds up. The kids are under a lot of stress. We have to down. We have to take the practice loads down. There's no question. Andrew Do you ever can. let the like the aces kids go? So say that you know school's not too challenging for them and they're oh, feeling yeah. it. No, I, I, so my older kids in season, like I, my my women's team, I had uh, think I had eight former Olympians on our USA hockey uh, women's team, and I'll, I'll send an email. Hey. If you, if you want to train four days a week in season, you can. We monitor you and say, hey, okay, so you may come in on a Wednesday or a Thursday, day before game, and you're good. I train you hard. We'll train you, right? Well, I say hard. It's not my summer stuff, right? So it's, it's, it's an in-season program, but it's pretty hard. But you come in and you're, you look bad, I do an aerobic recovery workout with you. It could be, right? So we'll train them based upon their feedback on heart rate variability. 
didn't have access to any heart rate, I guess, but dealing with freshmen in season. Yeah. And I guess the, the seniors that are laying their life on the line on the field, they're going to do it. They were doing a different program than the freshmen. Yeah. And then I've been, I guess, a part of programs and coaches where everybody does the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. But that missed opportunity long term for those freshmen, I just saw yeah. that post game day is an opportunity to build for the future. And um, I guess other programs that I've been a part of, they didn't see that way. So it was well, I, interesting. I, I think you have to. I think those young guys should do a completely different program. I mean, they don't have a game day. They don't have a stress. They're not traveling. They're not right. doing anything. So, I mean, they should be in almost in an off-season mode. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have to be oh. fucking ready to play on a game day. I'll lift them the same on Monday and Wednesday. And then we play Tuesday, Friday, Saturday. And if they're not playing, they have a god brutal lift high volume they're getting big especially if they need to put on weight right oh they yeah, yeah you right you do a high volume i'll do a lactate day where they're squatting for 25 to 26 seconds each squat set right yeah you know you're doing five reps six seven second iso hold or six sec, five second iso hold oh it's brutal um, so yeah, you got. I, I, there's an opportunity to, to get because they're just going to go up. They're going to take a nap in the afternoon. They're going to go to the game. It is what sounds it is. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like only, a nice life. Only time they get on the field is when they they made it back. Me as a keep them back coach. Ah, the keep them back coach. Yeah, get after back, after back. a goal, just step on the field. Uh, you, you know, I was actually going to ask the uh, the strength coach at UT if he was a back, uh, get back coach, but I'm pretty sure with as many people as they had standing around, like in there, for the, like somebody has a job. That's their yeah, deal. Yeah. I mean, dude, like UT is a machine. Like, I mean, there was what do we count? Like 90 some players out there, yeah. and there was at least as much, as many staff. Yeah. And everything was orchestrated. It was a, it was an orchestra going on out there, right? Yeah. You know, like like back in the day, they used to have uh, like a scissor lift that would like go up, and that's how they would film practice. Yeah. Now they have this chick where they had like this little like screen, and she had like uh, like a camera that was like thirty feet in the air, like a little thing that like came down, and she was like recording, moving around, like watching. a drone. No, it wasn't did, a drone. Oh, they did have a drone too. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. My yeah, they did. Yeah. I didn't see the drone, but, but they the, had the telescopic things, yeah. and she could follow everybody around. Really, oh, it was unreal. Like I just was laughing, thinking about man. I remember in college we had like a scissor lift dude, you know, like driving a scissor lift. Uh, you know, but, uh, frankly, I'm I'm a little upset. I wanted to drive the scissor lift, but they don't have that anymore. <laughs> so we uh, when we put the ceiling in in here, we did, we had a scissor lift, yeah. and we used to slalom them around uh, the poles. Ah. Uh, Sure. And, and there's like little screws in the ground that you couldn't <laughs> run over with a scissor lift. So taking some pretty tight yeah, turns. Oh, in yeah. Here. No, we're, we're pretty skilled on a scissor lift. Like, I like to think that uh, our intern test would be uh, scissor, scissor lift racing. Well, funny story is, I, I guess, um, Zach Zillner, UT women's strength coach, Hink looked as Hink look. Uh, I'm getting dehydrated over here, but uh, connected us with a kid who was looking for an opportunity and saw power athletes as a potential intern spot so he links links us up with this kid and he sends us his resume and uh it's most beautiful thing i've ever seen not in terms of the schools and the experience but i guess just the design of it formatting Formatting, it's got a picture of him like in an action coach pose in there It, it was a beautiful work of art and i guess we were slaving away 12 hours a day doing construction, no, like, strength or anything. And uh, Luke just fires back. He's, like, uh, very impressive. I've never seen anything like this design, but uh, tell us about your other skills. Your ability to drive a forklift, 
your like time <laughs> time digging a ditch. So all scissor the lift. all the other crap, yeah, the scissor, scissor lift that we've had to experience like within a week, and uh, then we never heard back from the kid. But then he got hired to work for Gunner at the Lakers. So it's like. Oh, we were just messing with his kid, and he's actually like a legitimate strength coach. Yeah. He did have a nice resume. I've never seen anything. What shocks me is the kids' ability. They they don't have a lot of – like, they come in, they work hard, they do a good job, but they they don't have – okay, we got a flat tire on this thing. Like, I don't think they can change it. Well, we had an intern kid uh, show up here, and our one test was, um, hey, go jump in that truck and back it up. And he, he couldn't drive a manual. Yeah, couldn't start. I know. Yeah, man. didn't know how to start hey. it. Then he like got in, and we were, and we were like, "Oh, I thought you'd have a manual." He's like, "I can." I just was kind of bullshit. You know, he called me on it, so he, he didn't know how to start the truck. I know. There's no adaptability. I, the, it's like, I I stole my first semi at 13, driving it down the road. My dad drove semi, right? And I jumped in that thing. He, him, and mom. I saw him. They turned to the corner to go to the next town to buy some stuff at the stores. I put some rocks in there. My brother's like, what are you doing? So I could back the semi right in the same spot. Oh. Jumped in that thing, 13 speed, headed yeah. down the road. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't think kids would be, no. no. So you remember the line from the uh, Fast and Furious when he's like, ah, you're out there, you know, a granny shifting, not double clutching like you ought to, which is hilarious because uh, the, whoever wrote that didn't know anything about racing. But when you drive a semi, you have to double clutch, yeah. which means you put in the clutch, you put it in neutral, then you take it out, you put it back in to put it into gear. Yeah. So it's just like, it was funny. He's like, God, you're not double clutching like you ought to. I'm like, I, I, fucking Fast and Furious doesn't know shit about racing. Granny shifting? What the fuck is that? Right. And you know, you think my dad would have noticed, like, I'm, I'm watching him drive and I'm like, oh, why you do this? Why you do that? I check in, I figure out all the gears and... And I'm like, next time you went to town, <laughs> did you get did you get away with it? I got away with it. My, oh, my neighbor man, we lived on a country back road, right? And my neighbor man's coming down the road, and and he and I'm hogging this road up, right? It's a back country road. I'm driving a semi. He he didn't even look. He was so scared driving down. There. He just waved. You know, it's my dad's truck, right? There I am. Just my brother's right beside me. It was beautiful piece of work. And oh, then it happened multiple times. I'd like jump in that thing when my dad took off driving. Around. Yeah, I was beautiful. Never got caught. That's. Oh. <laughs> Actually, Luke Summer's dream job is a semi driver. Yep. Is it? Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, glad to know he has some attribute, uh, you know, aspirations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we're sitting at about uh, 90 minutes, just over 90 yeah. minutes. Oh, yeah. I think that's pretty good. Unless yeah. there's anything else we can come up with. Uh, can any- we solve any more of the world's problems? Well, I mean, we can. Uh, just put me in charge and I will. <laughs> yeah. 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 Only if I'm uh, a dictator. You know right? what? Um, so I, like I, I, I told you I'm doing that talk uh, tomorrow or on Thursday. And so I was reading this thing and we were talking about uh, Kennedy's you know, 1960 thing in Sports Illustrated, you know, the soft American going through all this stuff. And uh, it's kind of interesting, like thinking about like, you know, I mean, geez, what was that? You know, what you got 40, 50, almost 60 years ago. Uh, is it perception? I mean, think about it. You've been a strength coach for over 20 years. I mean, and we kind of brought it up. But would you say that, uh, I mean, are the kids as soft as they were today? I mean, I, I know we talked about it earlier, and you were like, I think they've changed. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, to me, it doesn't really strike. Like, I, like, like looking at those kids out there today, they didn't really strike me that much different than me and my buddies when yeah. we played in college. I just wonder if, like, well, it's just there's more opportunity or there's just more – like, it just seems like, uh, like, you know, like 
going to college, playing football, and, you know, we were all there and everybody was doing it, like, there really wasn't anything else. Right. Like, I just wonder if, like, you know, there's just so much more is available to people. There's just so, so much, you know. Yeah, as you said, like, maybe I think they're more inclined to quit. Yes. Yeah. Right? And quitting that first time is the hardest time. And then after that, as you said. That's like, why you don't quit. Right? And you're sitting here, you're going, wow. I just think, and in, in the, the, you know, the parents say, well, if it's not your deal, then we'll find a better place for you. Like, I always thought, man, I'm in this setting. I got no other options. Yeah. I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> right? Seriously. Like, I mean, I can remember sitting in two days, and it was, it, like, they, it's we supposed had to suck. real two days. Right? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I nowadays was Nowadays, they don't. And you're sitting there going, I remember one of the kids sat beside me. He, he they don't do two padded practices nope. anymore, do they? Nope. Yeah, Not those kids. Bad, like, yeah, those kids are out there. That's their one and done, That's right? Their one and done. I, I remember sitting by a kid, and, and he ended up quitting anyway, right? You knew he was, but he was like, "Hey," you, I'm like, "I don't have a." He's like, "I'm gonna quit." He's like, "I don't want to stay here." And I'm like, you, "He's like, you want to quit with me?" I'm like, "Where am I gonna go? My dad won't let me back in the house. Like yeah. a football practice." Like, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh man, I called home last night. My mom and dad were having a party. They've never had a party, right?" And I'm just like, "Okay." He's like, "Man, I'll drive you home if you quit with me." I'm like, "I'm not." Like, I, there's Go no, fuck yourself. Yeah, there's no other... Like, I don't understand what yeah. you're thinking. Yeah. But, you know, it, you're just like, I think there's just so many options. And, and if... I don't know how many... I think kids are coddled a little bit by their parents. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I mean, but... It, so it's not kids as much as it's parents. Yeah. Whereas um, I was thinking, like, shit, like... I, I can't even imagine calling home and telling my parents I wanted to quit. They'd be like... There's no, and they'd no. probably hang up on me. They'd <laughs> been like, uh, what? Uh, you know, hang yeah. up. Yeah. Uh, like, Night- like, there was fucking no quitting. There was nothing like, what do you mean you're going to quit? We already bought tickets to go to the games. You're not fucking yeah. quitting. Yeah. Stay out there and suck, you know? Right. Right. We were having this conversation during one of our morning lifts this week, I think, about a failure. Because we saw that one speaker, and we didn't know if he experienced failure, but then talked about, I guess, college. Oh, yeah professional you saw people quit you saw people give everything they have but still fail like the i guess i don't think they were in a position to experience failure because they had it whether it was a safety net of of finances safety net of another place to go but uh i guess how do you put kids in a position to learn how to manage or deal with failure well they have to fail like, yeah. I think you have to fight. I mean, like, you know, we were kind of talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the, uh, we went to Tex and I went to a, an event here in Austin and we got to hear a couple guys speak. One of the guys, Aubrey Marcus, CEO for Onyx, got up and spoke and he was talking about, you know, he's, you know, uh, been, I guess, uh, you know, on this, I mean, really vision quest to try to figure out like, you know, how to, uh, you know, combat and deal with the darkness within himself, like that there's this darkness that he has to somehow, you know, make, you know, make friends, make enemies, you know, make allies, like he has to come to trips with this darkness. And so it's like, you know, uh, uh, I think he called it like plan medicine. They go and do these ayahuasca trips down in, you know, Peru and three weeks of isolation. He's going through all these kind of elaborate things to help him, you know, combat this, you know, this darkness, find out who he is. And, uh, I just remember thinking like, um, you know, like if you've never been in a situation instead of, you know, standing on a, an NFL football field in front of millions of people and having your worst nightmares, you know, in front of you and having those become a reality faster than you've ever imagined if you do not do the things that you're supposed to do. 
And like, you know, as I'm standing out there and you're basically, you know, one-on-one, you know, primal fist fighting some dude for three hours and trying to become his worst nightmare. I'm like, you pretty much figure out exactly who you are. And like, there's really no, you know, there's no ayahuasca trip. There's really nothing that I need to do to put me in a position where to find the darkness. I already know the darkness. I already made friends with it. I've already used it as my energy and use it to fucking do my job. And so I think for like... You know, you run into guys like, you know, uh, you know, like him and he's got a really amazing kind of adventure and, you know, uh, you know how he weaves it. But, you know, you go talk to guys that did my job or, you know, guys like Andy Stumpf who, you know, have, you know, fought on every continent and, you know, you know, former Navy SEAL, you know, has done, you know, he's one of like the top, you know, squirrel suits, you know, you know, you know, flight demand, you know, flight suit guys, you know, jump out of a plane like a squirrel and fly. I mean, these dudes like they live these things. There's no need to, you know, they're not necessarily having to do something to escape, to go to some other place because their reality is such. And, um, it was just pretty fascinating. But I think what you have to do is you have to like, um, I, over the course of like a lot of blogs and writing and doing these things, we always come out with these little things, but somebody asked me about mental toughness and I'm like, mental toughness is an accumulation of a whole lot of not quitting. And it all starts with little things. Like I remember not quitting when I was little and when I was, you know, older and like all of these things build up. Like you just don't instantly show up at a, you know, college or NFL training camp and be out there twice a day for six hours grinding and like, you know, decide like, hey, I'm going to do this today. No, there was a whole bunch of shit you didn't see before that of me and my brothers was kids like battling and fighting and training. I mean, the amount of hours like I remember I was in high school and I read some article about overspeed. And I was like, man, like if you can run downhill, you'll get faster. So I drove around our neighborhood for like an hour looking for like a, 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 a decline. And I finally found this park that had a decline. And I was out there on like a Saturday at like two o'clock in the afternoon trying to sprint down this hill to try to do overspeed. And a bunch of my buddies pulled up and like, what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to get faster. And they're like, why? I'm like, I read this thing about running downhill. And they were like, you're so fucking weird. And I'm like, yeah, but I, it, it's going to work. And they went to some party and were about to go hang out and have a good time. And I sat out there and ran for an hour trying to fucking figure out how to run faster downhill. Damn. And then I went home and that was just part of the deal, man. Like, you know, and there were so many days like that. Um, but unfortunately, it culminated for what I wanted to do, or at least what I thought I wanted to do, which was, you know, I, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to get my college paid for. I mean, I never really thought about playing in the NFL because I didn't know anybody that did it. And then all of a sudden, when I got to the position where guys that I was playing against were all of a sudden starting and playing in the NFL, and I was like, wait a minute, I played against that dude. He wasn't that good. And now he's starting. Then it became more of a reality. And then you realize, oh, oh shit, I could potentially go do this job. And, you know, all the stuff that you did leading up to it is what gives you, like, the, uh, you know, the rock to stand upon to be able to do all these other things. And unfortunately, if you haven't done all the stuff leading up to it, you have no chance. Like you don't have a solid rock to stand on. So then things like quitting and this, like I, there, there's never been a, a moment in my life where I thought, you know what, we shouldn't be here. I should quit. Fuck. That just wasn't part of the deal. Why? Cause I'd been through so much other shit leading up to this that like, why would I quit at this point? Like I'm fucking here. You know, they, they, I fooled them. I got a scholarship. What am I going to fucking give it back? Like it just, it's just, um, so I, I think at least from my point of view is you have to put your kids in a situation where they succeed and they fail and they fight and they battle and they scratch and they go on and they find it so that they can learn these, you know, the, these tests, they can learn these kind of lessons building up to it. So when the big ones show up, it's not like insurmountable. They're like, well, I did other stuff too. You know, like I told you guys the story, um, uh, about my brother Eddie and I riding our bikes to LAX. So when I was about, 
I think my brother Eddie was about 12. I was about eight or nine. We, uh, we got on our, on one Saturday morning or like it was a Friday, I forgot, uh, during the summer. And we rode our bikes from where we lived in Palos Verdes Torrance area to LAX, which was 29 miles on our single speed yeah. dirt bikes. I mean like little like BMX bikes. And we rode through the tunnel at PCH, you know, that goes underneath the airport where the planes go. And then we came back and rode home. Uh, so it was what, 29 miles each way. So it was at 38 miles and we showed up, we left at like eight in the morning. We got back at like four o'clock, five o'clock at night. And uh, we walked in. My mom didn't even say anything. She's like, you guys, oh, you guys aren't late for dinner. Wash up. And we literally just sat down and ate dinner. No money, no water, no cell phone, nothing. Just two fucking kids on their fucking little single speed, you know, BMX bikes riding like 40 miles in a day. Just because we're like, let's see if we could do it. You know, like that type of stuff. And like, we survived. We got home. And like, I remember my brother being like, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Like, we never did it again, but, like, we did that one kind of thing. We slayed a big dragon in that way. You know, the one thing, John, with sports, you're sitting here, you're going, all right, when you fail, here's the thing. I think a lot of parents nowadays don't take their kid and say, why did you fail? They say, well, I'm going to email your coach. Why, why, why did you fail at this? It's somebody else's fault. They don't let the, the kids realize, hey, you got to own this failure. you got to figure out why and what makes you better. You know, you got to question, why did we fail? Did you not prepare? Did you not have the skill sets you needed? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Did we put you into a situation that wasn't good? And and, uh, I'm just like, wow. I I don't see that parents are coaching kids on how to deal with failure or own it and then question themselves, right? The only thing I've ever done in my training was I've, I've questioned myself the most, right? But I always sit there and go, how can I make this better? And I don't think parents are teaching kids to say, hey, this was your failure. It's the reason you didn't make the team. It wasn't the coach. Oh, you know, shit. I've heard that too many you know times. What I mean? The coach didn't like me. And I'm like, I played for a lot of coaches that didn't yeah. like me. And I played on every one of those teams because at the end of the day, they wanted to win games. Yeah. You know? And I'm sure you've run into that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you probably dealt with some kids who were, who were fucking assholes, but they're good players. And you're like, there's nothing about you I like, but goddamn, you're a good player. Yeah, and well, yeah, and there's more tolerance for you, trust me, yeah. <laughs> because you're a good player. Yeah, yeah, well, if you're an asshole and you suck, it's real easy to get rid of you. <laughs> you're gone. If you're, a, if you're an asshole of a kid, but you're a hell of a player, they're like, ah. and, and you bring it every day? Yeah. We'll put up with a lot. Yeah, for, <laughs> we yeah. will put up with a. We'll oh, walk oh. you to class, dude. Do you know how many times I've heard these stories? It's, it's like, oh, I could have done this, but my coach didn't like me, didn't want to play me, and I always tell them, I'm like, man, my coach didn't like me very much either. Uh, but he played me because I was the best player. And at the end of the day, like, coaches want to win games and they want to play the best players. And, like, I mean, I remember Tom Cable telling us, he's like, you know what, I could give two shits who you are as a human being. If you can play fucking football, you can play for me. And and I I asked him, I'm like, well, how do you select your offensive line? He's like, I just look for the fucking baddest or the the five baddest motherfuckers that I could walk down an alley with to get in a fist fight. And he goes, if I wouldn't invite you to come down that alley and, and get into a fist fight, I ain't fucking starting you. you ain't playing, and yeah. that's, uh, that's how Tom Cable picked his offensive line. And um, I, I am uh, forever sad that these kids, I was watching those kids and I was like telling that coach, I, I was like, man, I wish we could get Tom Cable out here for you guys just one day. Because uh, Tom Cable would fucking have gone ham on those dudes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, but I mean, their coach was doing a hell of a job, dude. He was, uh, uh, you know, he was pushing those guys hard. It's good. I, I yeah. love seeing it. Like, I, I don't ever want to see an offensive line coach get into the point where you're coddling kids or begging yeah. them to play. You got to be fucking on their well, ass. John, as you know, to play a line, I played a line. You're like, you realize that you're, you're part of something that is a bigger, you're never going to get the fame. You're never going to get, right? You realize that you're part of a unit. 
Yeah. That 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 is with a bigger cause, right? You're going to help that guy score that touchdown and get get in the papers, but you're the reason that he scored because you protect the quarterback or you drove the ball down the field. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That you that to me, it's the most selfless group on the field is the O line. You know well, it's mean? the most fun. Yeah, yeah, you get to fuck people up. Right. Uh, I could give two shit about the ball and all the fame and then you know, all right. that. Who cares? You get to hit somebody. Yeah, you every get to fuck people play. up. I mean, yeah. that, that's what the hardest thing about retiring is: is you're like. Oh, I don't get to fucking beat anybody up anymore. Yeah. It just sucks. But so what do we do? We go in the gym and just try to fucking murder ourselves at six o'clock in the morning. And Take then, it out on that. Yeah. And then we show up and Caldita's is like, are you okay? I'm like, I feel awful. Yeah. I'm like, do some RPR on me. Yeah. No question. <laughs> you, the best is you're like, uh, which shoulders hurt? I'm like, oh, my right one. You're like, your left one looks awful. Yeah. I'm like, I feel terrible. I think it might stem from your hip just walking. But, oh man, dude, I felt so locked up when we were out there walking. I was like, I feel like the tin man. Yeah, because it was it was way different than at Summer Strong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, dude, we've, we've been turning up the intensity on the training, oh, that's and good. we've been uh, it's it's been good. I mean, we've been testing this new program, and it's got a lot of like uh, I'm just doing like a lot of nasty. We're doing a bunch of isometrics. We're doing yeah. a bunch of eccentrics. Uh, like today, we did a bunch of like uh, heavy one arm dumbbell bunch uh, off of the physio ball. Sure, you know, just trying to do some things that are a little outside the norm, and just trying to change the environment. Yeah. And then we jumped on those uh, on the jammers on the uh, you know set up the incline, put up a ton of fucking band tension, and do a bunch of you know exhaust. And when you get to fucking smash, and yep. you put it out there and do heavy eccentrics on those, you know, and it's just just trying to find some more fun, just some different training stimulus. And, uh, no, man, I've been really just trying to think about, like, how we can incorporate more triphasic into it. Uh, it's just, uh, I'm, it's, one, you need a partner, and two, you need the equipment. Yeah. And you need people that are pretty switched on. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's the hard thing. I always like, man, I just don't know how you would do this if, like, you didn't have the right equipment or you didn't, like, if you were in just a garage gym that had just a, yeah. a rack and a bar and, you know, nobody to spot you. I'm like, I don't know how you do this stuff. Yeah. So. It's tough. I mean, like the single leg stuff, you could use a hex deadlift bar where you pick up two legs and then go down single leg eccentrically. Mm. You know what I mean? That's a possibility. Definitely a possibility. Um, yeah, but there's very few things like riding a fucking sub, uh, maximal squat to the bottom and trying to fucking yeah. not die. Yeah. And then just praying to God that you're fucking, squ- I mean, especially with a safety bar squat, because there's no way to ditch it. No. So they, you, you got to hope to God they stand up with you. <laughs> you know? It's a little evil. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. It's a little evil. It's good stuff. You know, I, I think I saw somebody try to ditch a safety bar one time. And uh, it was, uh, they fucking tried to, like, dump. It just, it just, yeah, no. You got to go out the front. You got to go out the back. You gotta yeah, the yeah, yeah. Back. They tried to, like, pitch it this yeah. way. The problem is, is, like, when it goes, that thing spins up and fucking hits you in the shoulders and yeah. about breaks your clavicle. So yeah. just don't do it. Don't do it. No, don't do it. So, we good, Taxi? Cool, man. Any speak engagements, in-person RPR classes? What? Yeah, um, I guess you So, should we go to the in-person RPR, or should we go to the online one? Um, If you can get one close, go to the in-person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to go uh, to the in-person. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, I'll get you into that. And then we should be online here soon, so. uh, No, man, I'd I'd love to take my wife. When she was watching you do it, she got all excited. Sure. You know, because uh, I know what she's thinking. She's like, oh, I could do this to the kids every single yeah, day when yeah, they take their yeah. supplements. Because, right. as you know, I, I love my wife, but she's a crazy person. Yeah. She is 100% tuned up on those kids. I love it. Yeah. Same with 
mine. I'm fortunate. Uh, I can take no credit for raising my amazing kids, yeah. right? Uh, I just just stay out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I've, uh, I've I've long since said that women are uh, more highly evolved beings, and they got the shit way more figured out. So you just kind of like stand back and. Well, we we were talking at Summer Strong that you watch Rambo or Rambo Two yeah. for the first time with your son. So yeah. you're that is an important that, moment in the young no man's question, life, right? And we were like, yeah, Rambo and. And he loved it. And my daughter walked in, the, looked at it for literally three seconds, was like, ugh. And then walked out. And Brody's like, what's wrong with her? I'm like, I'll explain it later. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, that's the, you know, those yeah. are some man. Those yeah. are some, I mean, Rambo, uh, First Blood, one yeah. of the best it's movies blessed. ever. I mean, yeah. how, I mean. And everyone remembers their first time watching it. Yeah. And it's usually sitting down with the father and. Um, yep. I was yeah. getting the Vietnam War explained to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was mine. But oh, your your dad sat down and now uh, you watched that movie and he explained the Vietnam War to you. Yeah, so I got like I guess the backstory to, I mean, added depth. What to the year movie. was that movie? What year was that? Eighty four? Uh, no way. Yeah. It, it might. It was been. before I was in high school because I remember a guy talking about it. Yeah, it had to be 84, 80, 82 for First Blood. Yeah. Oh, eighty two. Man, we're getting... Yeah, I know. It's, Jeez. And part two, 1985. What took him so long? So that's that's in your... Yeah. Your, yeah, your yeah I mean, uh, yeah, no, that's a great one. So te- Tex and I have this ongoing debate, which is the best movie year, 1985 or 1994. So it's... It, they're pretty good. Yeah. So Pulp Fiction, Dumb and Dumber, Forrest Gump yeah. is 94, and we got Rambo part two... Oh, yeah, we got it. I mean, if, if we read it, you'd be like, oh, I love every one of those movies. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, we, we, did, uh, we, we did a podcast with Bert. Back to the Future, Goonies, Rocky IV, oh. Breakfast Club, Cocoon, Commando, oh. Weird Science. <laughs> one of the best. <laughs> one of the weirds. One of the best movies ever made, Weird Science. Teen Wolf, Fletch. Fletch. Erwin F. Fletcher. Yeah. 80, 84. Rocky IV was an 84. Yeah. Did that end the Cold War, basically? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it did. <laughs> yeah. You could change. Well, Rocky I was 76. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, and yeah. then I remember seeing, uh, you know, Rocky II. I mean, obviously, um, I think that was like in the 80s. Yeah. I thought, I forgot when Rocky II came out, but then, uh, and then, oh, and then Rocky III. Three. With yeah. Clever Lang. And yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was by far the best one. Yeah. And I remember when Rocky IV came out. I remember watching that. Yeah, we did a podcast with Bert where we argued on it. Text lost. No way. We crushed you. No way. So, Dumb all right. Man. So, uh, yeah, yeah we'll, uh, in the show notes, we'll post up some RPR stuff and a uh, link to Cal's book. And uh, if you guys want to, you know, basically melt your minds, I got it sitting over there on my desk, uh, triphasic. So, thank you, Mr. Cal Dietz. Appreciate it for our, uh, another episode of the Premier Podcast. And strength, strength and conditioning. And conditioning. It's time for you to empower your performance. Cal Dietz has a ton of content floating around out there. A good place to start is his website, xlathlete.com. There you can find links to his publications, including several books based on building triphasic training and how to cycle it appropriately into your program. Cal also has a YouTube channel if that helps you illuminate some of the concepts and mechanics of triphasic training exercises. You can search the name Calvin Dietz or just find the link in our show notes. And now for another installment of why you should attend the Power Athlete Symposium on December 7th, 8th, and 9th 
in Austin, Texas. This week, I'd like to remind you that our speakers are amazing. Uh, our speakers such as Rob Wolf, Cara Miller, and Olympian Adam Nelson, and so many more will be hanging around. And you can rub elbows or lats with them, and they're just incredibly knowledgeable folks. You can be that person who approaches them casually and kind of corners them, firing them question after question, and eventually and inevitably confessing something like deeply personal to them. You can be that person. You can live the dream at the Power Athlete Symposium. There's always one. Until next time, bye!